What's up all you beautiful people? It's your boy Hobart coming to you on this, the last day of November, the 30th. December is almost upon us. Winter is here. Uh, It's getting colder, but uh, it's getting cozier. And that's what we try to roll with here is that nice cold to cozy balance. Um, But I'm loving it. I love the holidays. I hope you all love it too. Thanksgiving was a blast getting messages here as I'm trying to do my intro. Uh, (laughs) My guest today is, uh, you know, I'd say he's one of the more royal people that I've ever met in my life, which uh, makes sense given that his last name is Khan, which means king. Uh, But, you know, growing up in Marin, you meet all sorts of, of different people. There's so many interesting stories find out oh this guy started this ice cream company or oh this is you know the inventor of the mountain bike and you know guess what i'm in school with his kid and you know there's just a lot of uh very interesting stories uh in the place where i grew up and you know growing up out there you know one of the ones that always captivated me was the story of the cons and, uh, you know, the patriarch Ali Akbar Khan, you know, always heard he was this led national treasure of India, master of all these instruments, uh, you know, just the boss Indian classical player. And growing up, I got to go see some concerts at the college that he started in San Rafael. And I grew up with his kids and went to high school uh, with his son, uh, who is none other than my guest today. And that's Mr. Monik Khan. Monik is a touring Sarod player uh, in the classical Indian musical tradition, and he is also a teacher at the Alak Barkhan College of Music. And uh, I've been wanting to get this guy on for a while. Just I'm so intrigued and just overall fascinated by the story of the family and and by the music itself. Uh, Growing up, going to the concerts, it's such, it's so unlike any music I had encountered. It's such a different take on music than, than the traditional classic Western take. And even though there are elements of, of Western classical music in it as we get into. Um, but yeah, I wanted to sit down and, you know, I've always heard bits, tidbits of, of hearsay and, and pieces uh, through others' words about, about the story of the family and, and, even just some some of the musical qualities, and I really am glad to have Monik on the show to to talk about it. Um, so we go into all sorts of uh, tidbits about the music and philosophy, and then the story of his father and his grandfather, which is an incredible story. This is a long one, folks. Don't feel like you gotta, you know, get it all done in one sitting if you're looking at that count and you're getting daunted. Um, one thing I will say is. A lot of times in my podcast, I like to start, you know, if if I bring on someone who's known for something, a lot of times, you know, they're used to getting asked questions only about that particular thing. And it'll put them in a certain kind of mind space, headspace where they're, it's almost can be like a rote or a routine thing. So one of the things I like to do as a host is start on like a more neutral topic or a topic that doesn't necessarily 
directly relate to to what it is they're known for or what it is that th- that's their main thing and so we spend the first i think 30 35 minutes just talking about food so maybe you like that uh it's certainly something i love to talk about food but uh if you want to get to like the musical segment and you're feeling like oh this is going on why don't these guys get to the point i think it's right around the 35 36 minute mark uh, is when we start to dive into the the tradition and the classical Indian music. So just wanted to give you the heads up in the intro in case you're rolling your eyes at me uh, asking them and, and talking about uh, the, the the cuisine of India. So um, much love to you all. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, and thank you so much, Monik, for coming on my show. So without further ado, let me introduce to you my man, Monik Khan, on this episode 62 of the Bartcast. Great to hear from you. What a surprise. <laughs> the water, yo. The water's on our side, yo. We're running with the water. It's the best. like the eggs over rice <laughs> the runny eggs over rice is like a recent recently come into my life oh yeah like growing up i never thought about like you know pork fried rice was a staple in the family when we get like chinese food but like but that's cooked egg though it's but that's like, like scram- little yeah, pieces, scrambled little yeah. pieces but like i think it was like there's this bomb spot in the East Bay called Bird and Buffalo. It's like a really good Thai Thai street food place. Sounds good. That's not like your like standard red, green, yellow curry. It's right. like everything's in Thai and it's, it's a little bit more high grade and they do like these rice bowls with the egg on top and you never would think about it, but the yolk and the rice. Yeah, when the yolk the, runs over the rice, it's really tasty. Dude, yeah, yeah. fire, dude. Yeah, it was an accident when I started doing it. Yeah? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was making them that way, but then I just put it over rice because, I mean, Indian, so we just rice all the time. But, like, uh, I had it, and then I had some uh, avocado cut up, and I sort of just got lazy, and I kind of mixed it up. And then it was, like, this mash of egg, rice, and avocado. Mm. And I was like, dude, what? This is, like, pretty darn good. Some so turkey bacon? Oh, yeah. Well, that, yeah. That, that, I didn't have walk, uh, avocado today. It was just that. But, yeah, that's what I had. It was bomb. I liked it. I'm a big fan. Dude. Anything I, with rice, pretty much better. So. Yeah, rice is nice. I've been trying to do the like no processed grain diet. Oh, uh, so like quinoa and stuff like that. I don't even like quinoa though. Yeah, just I like rice. rice better, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> White rice, like I pretty much. It's like I'm either doing that or like sweet potatoes as the base. Sweet potato rice? No, no, just oh, oh, like oh, I was like, what? Like my move these days, I I kind of created this dish that's like I cube sweet potatoes. I bake them with like garlic, toss them with salt and pepper and Sounds oil. Delicious, yeah. And so they like, you know, maybe for a half an hour, so it, they get like kind of crisp. And meanwhile, I'm stir frying mm. like steak and mushrooms and kale and mm. ginger and turmeric and garlic. Then I take the sweet potatoes, I toss them in butter. Then I mix it with everything. Oh, that's what like my meal prep. I'll do like 
cook that on Sunday or Monday, and then I have like three or four nights of. Ah, so you do meal prep. Hell yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. Yeah. That sounds delicious. It's bomb. I mean, you know, I'm still like, I feel like when you come up with a new recipe, there's this, there's an amount of time where it's still philosophical in nature. (laughs) I've had a couple that have been like amazing. And then now it's just like tinkering. Sometimes I overcook the potatoes or I'm like, put the steak in too early. So it gets too hard. Yeah. Before you solidify the, uh, the recipe. Yeah. So I'm like, like burritos, I could cook a burrito perfect every time. Nice. You've done it so many yeah, times. I got yeah. breakfast burritos on block, but uh, the sweet potato thing, I'm, I'm a journeyman stir fryer. You it's, know? No, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you're, yeah. yeah. You're, you've passed the, uh, wait, is journeyman before apprenticeship or apprentice is? I think it goes apprentice to journeyman, journeyman master. master. Right? Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. Nice. Well, that means that's, you're pretty far along. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. That's the six figure, uh, <laughs> six figure breakfast meal, dude. The pipeline, yeah. yeah, dude. I mean, it. Sweet potatoes <laughs> have come into my life like eggs on rice mm-hmm. late, late. Uh, but they're so good when you do it right. Like the, if you make them salty, sweet and salty kind of vibe, you know. Food is just good. I'm yeah. just a huge fan. So, would well, you have like a go to meal that you like to, you know, when you're like. You're not too lazy to like, <laughs> like to just to go out to eat, but you're like, you have enough ambition to cook something. What's your go-to? You know, I do, you mentioned burritos and it's like, I do love them very much, but if you just do like, like fajita style type oh. thing where it's like, if you just do the kind of a mixed veggie, it's like that, it's like, it's enough where even if I don't, I mean, I definitely like meat. So I'm not a carnivore, mm-hmm. but I mean, like I definitely like to mix it up. So yeah, whether it's steak or chicken. Uh, but if I don't have any of that, even like vegetarian fajitas are like super bomb because they don't take that long to, to basically, uh, season. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, it's effectively using, I mean, Indian food, uh, uses a lot of the same spices, right? Stone some cumin. It's like, dude, it's going to be good. It, it hits Chipotle, the spot. tortilla. Yeah, yeah, you exactly. Know? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, they're just saying that speaking the same language in different ways. Oh yeah. So yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of that. That's pretty tasty. But then like Indian food also is really quick to make. So like depending on the dish, mm-hmm. but like dal and rice, that kind of stuff is really quick. And then mixed vegetables are really tasty. Uh, Sorry, I just put my phone on airplane mode. Oh yeah. I should do the same. Um, anyway, sorry. Yes, I, I realize now we're talking about food. My bad. I guess so. I'm, I'm ready whenever you are. Oh no, we're we're, oh, we're in. <laughs> yeah, no, dude. It's food is oh, dude. Right. Food is totally. A, that's the diving board. Bro. Nice, nice, nice. No, man. I uh, when I traveled to India and was make, I learned how to make chapatis. You, know, you do them by speech. hand. Yeah, because we were. I fell into this group of people. It was like seven different countries, uh, on this little beach in in uh, Gokarna. Okay. Like Kolkata. I mean, not Kolkata, uh, Karnataka. Yes. Uh, like it's right on the Goa, Karnataka border on the West coast. And there's like this magical little beach that you can only reach by a boat or hiking in. Ah. It's like the size of a football field. And, uh, there's like this family that's like laying claim to like the beach. Yeah. The Indian family, like they come down every day and run a little restaurant there's like this like cement area. So they set up their stove and they make tali and it's like super cheap and it's amazing. You go swim all day, but I ended up living on this beach for 11 days. Nice. And I fell in with this group of people where like even the, you know, 28 rupee tali is too much for them. So we started going to the market 
and like making our own like we'd make like a masala and or a, um, a doll and like just uh make chapatis and this there, there was a young indian couple in our group and they taught us all how to make chapatis and we had like the plastic tube and we're blowing on the fire and man that's <laughs> nice yeah yeah i've like i've learned a couple times I, I mean i've learned throughout my life to make them by hand but it is not something that i normally do but yeah because like we grew up in our house anyway i interrupted your story though sorry no, chapatis, on, chapatis on the beach is pretty nice uh, yeah and my reason for bringing it up was just that like there was a couple different times where i you know got to like have home cooked Indian food, which was the best. And I would always make burritos. Like anytime uh, there was a tolly as a Californian, I'd be like, all right, take the chapati, put yeah, the rice yeah, put on, the inside it. put the doll on. Yeah, yeah. And everyone's looking at me and I'm like, yeah, dude, this is. Dude, that's the thing that's so funny is I like I, years ago. So I have my, like, I don't know if you know this, but like we have a lot of siblings in my family. Like there's like all of them in Medina that are in my immediate family. Yeah. Like my, like, you know, I know the greatest hits, but give me the full <laughs> discography. Long story short <laughs> is that there's 12 of us all together. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so like there's three in our family, there's four in the middle family. And then the first family had five. So we always joke wow. that like musically it makes sense because it was five, four, three. And okay. it always goes two boys and a girl, two boys and a girl, two boys and a girl, which is crazy because yeah. it crosses over the five, four, three. So we were like, nice dad what is an achievement yeah well he was a busy man you know and then it's also like he just kept it musical the whole time Uh so uh that my eldest or our eldest brother uh ashish khan um he's a brilliant sarod player but he's like the you know he's the 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 patriarch of our family now Mm. but uh he uh he one time was at our house and like when you know maybe i was like in my late teens early 20s and he was staying over and we had pizza that night but then he had also made like chicken curry and some dal and some other stuff and so um uh yeah no no he was yeah so this is i was a teenager and uh he's at the house and i hear something in the middle of the night and i was like what is going on so i walk out uh, and go check in the kitchen. Ashish is there, and he's got slices of pizza, and I just see him lathering stuff on it. And I was like, "What are you? What are you doing out here, Ashish Dada?" And he's like, "Oh, he's like uh, having pizza, like having pizza, basically uh, with chicken curry and dal." But the thing is, the chicken curry was still with the bone. Okay. So I was like, "What do you yeah. mean? You know, like he just had this fat slice of pizza and just kind of like you know wrapped it up and just put like chicken with the bone on it, and then like lathered it in dal." And he was like super good <laughs> i was like what i don't know i did try a little bit of it and i know that that's actually like a thing that became popular yeah or is becoming more popular like mm-hmm. chicken like chicken curry pizza or uh-huh. curry pizza different but i think the, all that was to say that burrito style wraps with dal rice and things like that is delicious yeah. and i actually am a slightly new convert to that maybe in the only in the last oh dude it's because of keith fleming yeah, you remember Keith? Shout out Keith. Fleming. Yeah, what up, Keith? Yeah. Uh, it's because of his river rafting trips, dude. Did okay. you ever? Did you ever go on those? No, I didn't even know that was a thing. So his family has a rafting company that his dad started years and years ago. But now Bryce, his older brother, and him have kept it going. So okay. D. Flem, uh, Dennis, uh, ran this thing, brought his whole you know family up and trained them. And then he they used to bring all of his their friends basically on these river rafting trips. Dope. Uh, I went when I was like 15 and hadn't gone back for a long time. And then basically I've been doing it almost for, I don't know, for many years in a row until, until the pandemic started. But um, we, you know, we all cook for each other. 
So it's like, dude, there's like, it would be like, you know, anywhere from like eight to like 15 people sometimes I feel like, maybe even more. But anyway, doll, Indian food is great for, you know, massive quantities of food. So basically made it, but then we started having, like, we'd be on, you know, on the water and then we would pull off onto some beach to like eat lunch. And it was like, we'd have like all this excess doll and rice and stuff. And so we would just make these burritos with doll rice, like cheese, lettuce, all this stuff that I was like, what is this, dude? (laughs) But I was like, yeah, why not? And then I had it and I was like, damn, this is pretty darn good. I'm, I'm, I'm sold. So yeah, dude, the, the cross I feel like every culture has a wrap. Yeah, yeah. And every culture has like a some form of dumpling. I've been Oh, sure. I want to write a book that's like dumplings of the world, dumplings you know, like whether it's world. like pot stickers, piroshkis, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, you got pakoras, yes, all the yeah, p you words, yeah, you know. Yeah. That's funny too. Uh, but like every culture has like wrapped stuff up and then it's also like, you know, we here we are empanadas, we mm-hmm. have, you know, here we have hot pockets, you know, like Hey, those are good too. <laughs> yeah, dude. But 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 the uh yeah, I feel the like dumplings I feel like world. CPK, like California Pizza Kitchen, like did the Indian pizza. Oh, the they... first time I had it, I think. Yeah, I wonder if they were the first ones to do it. I don't know if I've ever had like an actual like curry Indian curry pizza. Mm. I've only done it like homemade style. Yeah. Well, like pseudo homemade. I had the mm. pizza already delivered right. and then I added stuff to it. That's a pizza that's a new plus. one. CPK, that's something I haven't thought about in a while. So, yeah, they started the chicken curry or the Indian maybe. curry pizza phrase. I or know, phase. I know there's also – maybe it's in the East Bay or – I know that there's like a – there is like a legit like restaurant now that is like specializes in Indian style pizza. Huh. That's like – I think it's like Indian run. Like it's like – not just the Californication of yeah 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 of so it, using you know? other different types of dishes yeah and but it's like they're making Indian food like even the bread is like naan rather than like pizza dough. And this like, is in the East Bay. I don't. I forget. I've, I remember seeing it recently, and I forget if it was like in the East Bay or it could have been South in Bay. somewhere else that I was traveling. Yeah, or mm. in South Bay. I mean, it would make sense if it was like South- Fremont yeah, or yeah, yeah. San Jose or you know. Hmm, I'm gonna have to do some digging into this. Yeah, too. but yeah. it looked bomb, and I, I feel like the you see a lot of different spots playing around with that, and it's cool, man. It's cool seeing how different cultures, you know, blend their blend blend. You know, the big the great melting pot of the U.S. There's so many different fusions that get created. I know food is one of the uh, the greatest crossovers. Uh, it's just too good, man. What's yeah. your like? Do you, did you guys have a dish like growing up in the fam that was like the dish? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So we we definitely do. Well, for me, there's a bread called puri, which is you? like yeah, it's basically like a flatbread, but instead of kind of uh, puffing it up like on a flame, you deep fry it, and okay. then it puffs up that way. Yeah. And so it's you know it takes a bit more to make. It's not just like you just. I mean, rolling it. It's either way. Once you've already gotten to that, I think step mm-hmm. of having to like lay the flour out and actually start rolling it you've already done the extra mile so you may as well just go and deep fry it instead but um it dude it's so good it's like it's light and fluffy even like day old like Mm. the next day once they've kind of gotten a little soggy and cold like they're still just delicious but um that with almost anything is 
like on point for me dude Dude, i'm just i know fried dough is another thing almost pizza by it's so bomb dude but like well i guess that's i don't know if that's fried necessarily but still the donuts and donuts are bomb yeah this is less sweet this is more savory but so that with what we call like aloo curry so it's potato curry Uh And, and so there's like you know the old spots in on like the in the train station like train station aloo curry which is like you know they'll just have like this uh really delicious potato curry that you can buy at the train stops and then it'll just have like you know lathered and greasy puri and stuff like that uh if your stomach's not up for it that'll definitely set you back so that's one of those ones where it's like maybe don't eat that when Mm. you're like taking off on your journey right or you do you're just gonna be you're gonna be maybe (laughs) yeah you're gonna be taking a break for a while uh while you while you don't have that as your first meal we'll say uh but i I got to experience that traveling india and it's true like I think this is a thing that I see exist in so much of the world <laughs> outside of the States, which is like something about the way, I don't know if it's like the way that we construct that the culture is here, but like I experienced this in like Italy and in like other countries, but definitely in India where like I would go into like a train station and I've gotten that, the puri with the aloo uh. curry and like, it's like this one this person who set up their like establishment at the train station, which makes sense. Uh. And it's like this person is like a world class. It's not maybe the, like the best for you, but the like flavors are like the chai that I had on the trains was like yeah, like another unlike any beautiful. other chai, you yeah, know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I I went the probiotics and grapefruit extract route and kept me pretty good. Oh, to save you? Yeah, 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 yeah. It, yeah. it, it, it I only got sick once in India because I got tricked in drinking bad water in Mumbai, which laid me out. But even with that, like the, you know, I didn't like, I wasn't throwing up. I just had like a bad fever for like five days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's pretty lucky (laughs) for having drinking the tap water. Yeah. 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 yeah, It was, uh, yeah. It was intense. (laughs) All I can say is I can, I can commiserate and I'm so, yes, that would be a spiritual experience, dude. Yeah. That's one of those where it's like, if the food is so good and it's like, yeah, if your, if your stomach, (laughs) if your stomach, if your stomach isn't Mm -hmm. ready for it, then it's like, yeah, you'll get messed up. But if you can make it through that first initial kind of like getting used to everything, then it's like, then you can just kind of indulge and hopefully you don't get worse. But, and I think what a lot of people don't understand is like, I know there's a certain amount of people whose stomach gets set off by the spice, uh, you know, like, mm-hmm. which I'm grateful. Like we growing up in our family, we always had a lot of, my mom cooked a lot of Indian food and sure. we always had a lot of hot sauce and everything that's never really messed with my stomach. And when you go to these other cultures, like that's actually making the food cleaner. Like a lot of those spices have antimicrobial properties in them too. Like to make it more palatable to your stomach. Yeah. And like I, I think that there's, you know, can burn out any of the yeah, issues exactly, with it. Yeah. Well, it'll burn out one way. Yeah, For once sure. you once you handle the first. One under yeah. the other. <laughs> I know. I know. It's it's so it's like it's really funny how that works. But um I'm sorry that you got sick drinking the water, dude. That's like the that's like the 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 you know, the it's like an urban legend, but at the same time, it's totally legit where people would like tap the bottles and then like uh, fake tap them on or screw the caps on, but like have the yeah, sealer. Yeah. And then you could like buy the, the I mean this was even water. more kind of head scratchy and infuriating i went out to eat it was a decent restaurant in mumbai with my friends and it was like a friend of my friend and it was at the end of the end of the meal they brought the water with the lemon 
Oh yeah, to wash your hands. To wash your hands, but I, I, being a foreigner, like didn't understand what I, you know. He told you to drink it, and I was like, I asked uh, one of the other Indians at the table, and I was like, Hey, like, is this for drinking? And he's like, Yeah, as a joke, but he didn't watch. Oh. He didn't like keep watching to make sure I didn't drink and it. And you drank it. So I took a sip, and then one of the other friends at the table was like, Don't do that. Like, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. no. Oh, and I'm no. like, and I was like, What the hell, man? Like, you gotta. You, you got to make sure like he's yeah, like yeah, i was yeah. he's like i was joking i was like that's fine but you got to like let me know that let me know like make sure that i don't because i took him at face value well, you're trying to be respectful also you know don't try to insult anybody like right. that and totally. also you ask somebody a legit question and yeah. Like, yeah man and so he was like you'll i'm sure you'll be fine and then i woke up like the next morning and it was just like yeah it was it was uh it could have been a lot worse i think the fact that i was taking probiotics for like I, this was like maybe a month and a half in, so I'd been taking probiotics every day. And I'd you'd already, already been eating and stuff like that. It's not like you hadn't been eating. Yeah, and uh, I'd had like, you know, deli belly a couple times. Yeah, you'd already gotten some of the I'd had the hurdles. digestive stuff, but it wasn't yeah. too intense. And then the, uh, then, but, you know, and then I was also taking grapefruit seed extract, which is, I recommend for any traveler. Um, but even with all that, like, yeah, I was like in bed for like, five days and it definitely was uh i feel like almost like a badge of you, you know every traveler has their story you kind of got this was like your story go through it <laughs> once i was like is it you know it that's hurt a, but it was <laughs> that's a good story though i mean like that actually has like a whole aspect to it with the the accidental aspect of drinking the the the, the lemon water for washing your hands you'll know that to never do that again totally yeah, yeah. that sucks i'm really sorry to hear that you had to go through that dude and I, I was also super lucky though because i was staying at my friend sandeep's house who was like you know shout out sandeep he's been on the podcast before. Sandeep. uh he was the it was you know the Indian couple that I was living on the beach with. Oh, nice. And him and his girlfriend, I was staying at their place in Mumbai and they were just the, the best people, the sweetest people. They like gave me their bed to be sick in for five days and just really took care of me. And I was just, as luck would have it, I got sick, but I was also in this like very nurturing environment to where, get sick. Yeah. Like it was almost like this opportunity to be like as vulnerable as a baby and like have the perfect person who like to help totally nurture you yeah. back to health yeah totally yeah versus being like in an apartment somewhere where you don't know anybody you hadn't like connected with some sort of community or somewhere to help totally. you and you're just like laying in the room by mm -hmm. yourself i've heard of friends having to deal with that and you're just like that is so sad and i'm sorry that you had to go through it but i'm glad you made it through because <laughs> yeah, i've never had that experience i've only i've only traveled to india every time i've ever been has either always been with family or staying with family or mm -hmm. like close family friends type of thing to just like hit it uh, solo is uh, is a journey, dude. But to answer your question originally, because uh, you asked what was like the staple, it's puri and like aloo curry, basically that. And then like, you know, for us, it's like if you have lamb curry or something like that, that's like, those are like the, anytime we have like a holiday meal, that's mm -hmm. like the stuff we go for. It's like, or you do like coconut doll mm -hmm. and like, it's not necessarily with like, with garbanzo, it's not chana, but it's like just like thicker, uh, thicker lentils and so like if you do that like this coconut style doll that my family makes with aloo curry and puri it's like if i could request any meal that's like the one that's the one dude it's just because it's so nostalgic yeah uh that it's like there's so many memories associate associated with that that particular meal yeah 
but anytime dude like because i'm going on sunday and in like a few days to back to india it's like i'm just like though when i can have puri and uh, an omelet <laughs> yeah ah dude it's so good i'm stoked yeah, i omelets, can't wait because yeah, <laughs> the omelets are so different over there too they do differently they'll do like green chili and they'll throw in things like that too it's kind of like tasty. a flat plate or like you know like we do the fold but yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. of the omelets i had there was almost just like they never folded it <laughs> yeah it every i think each each well also then it's like you know because india is so massive and it's so vast and there's so many different cultures within india the culinary you know magic of the country is just totally different dude if you're down oh. south it's like the types of dishes i get there versus growing up you know bengali it's like mm-hmm. our dishes compared to uh you know, so many other places. There's just, there's so many different styles. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. Flat omelets? Yeah. I mean, like, that, <laughs> like, uh, dude, I'm just stoked. Like, uh, I, honestly, kind of, uh, eggs are just delicious. So, oh, like, so I, I can't really go wrong. But. I know that's a trip, too, because, like, you know, we grew up together. Right. And when I was getting ready to go to India, I, like, hit up, I hit you up. I, I hit a bunch of, like, my Indian connections up. And real, and then realizing like the part of you know, I just assumed like go to India, I'll experience maybe some of like where Monic comes from, and then I learned like that you got you know, as it were, my journey. I saw like so many different cultures, but I never got to experience like any of the East Coast or the, uh, the Bengal Bengali got it, culture. Got it, got it, got it. I didn't know that. Next time, you know. Yeah. Oh, there's plenty to explore. Yeah, dude. yeah. I did the we- I did the whole West Coast from like you know Trivandrum up to uh, Dharamsala. Oh, nice. You yeah. went to Dharamsala. That's yeah. one place that I would love to go. Dude, I've never been. Highly, highly recommend. That's what I hear. You know, it's like a, what is it? Like a, it's like a day by bus from, from Delhi. It's not too bad. Yeah, not too bad. And it's a really cool bus ride because you like, you start out in the basin, you know, the Indian basin mm. and like all the agriculture. And then you hit the foothills of the Himalayas and it's really just like. Up. Just straight up, Dang. and like, you know, McLeod Ganj, where which is kind of like the capital zone. It's where the the um, Tibetan government in exile is. Uh, it's like this cool village along the cliff, looking down into the Indian Basin, and you can just see like the continent, the subcontinent, just extending into yeah, infinity. Forever. Yeah. yeah, and uh, oh, how cool! It was a trip for me because I was coming from from Pushkar from Rajasthan. Yeah. And so, you know, my whole, the whole trip up North, like starting in the South and coming North, it's like you get in pockets where you're like, okay, I can see churches here or now I'm seeing mosques for sure, for sure, for sure. and like going from Rajasthan, which has a lot of Islam and you know, the whole time, a lot of Hinduism and then coming up into the, the Himalayas and you start to feel the Buddhism in the air. And wow. it's like, it was like this subtle, intangible flavor but i started to like feel like that change come and, and it was really at a time where i was like two two and a half months in so much noise i was a little bit like overstimulated and for was sure. looking for shanti and uh and finding <laughs> it up there was you know it was like ah oh, it was such a nice exhale out into the mountains mm-hmm. above everything yeah like even just to smog and things like that mm-hmm. yeah, yeah that's a uh, really powerful wow yeah that's another reason to to be out there i've spent a little time in the mountains but not nearly enough 
and then it's like I actually went down south in 2020 before the pandemic started I was down in like Kerala for the first time ever in my whole life dude it was it was it was definitely a different uh it was a different place part of Kerala uh I was like two I flew into Cochin and then I was like two hours I think like north of it uh I forget what the actual city what the area was but there's a there's a famous um there's a famous institution, dance institution there that focuses on like Kathakali and Kudiyatham, these old traditional dance styles. Mm-hmm. And um, I was there for a performance at this at this institution, and uh, then I got to stay um, uh, with some dear old family friends. One of the guys who actually like was responsible from my dad basically being here in America back in the 50s, which is crazy. So he's an elderly man now, and so he, he but he always, he was very deeply associated with down south in India. So I went to visit him, played this concert, and then got to spend a lot of time in this, like, I think it's like a 5th century temple. Wow. Um, I could be, could be 12th century, and those are vastly different times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was like two years ago, or it was, like, it was right. like, you know, a thousand and a half. Um but this family basically runs this this old Hindu temple, and it's been in the family for like generation, generation, generation. But I got to watch a number of these performances of Kathakali and Kudiyatham like in there, mm-hmm. and dude, these are like it, it's it's a it, it's a trip. I don't know if you're familiar with these these dance forms, but they get very uh, decked out into different garb uh, and lots of face paint and just like really. It, the the whole process of it is pretty powerful to watch them and it's kind of like i think like a, the tradition of even just transforming into these characters and these would be like mythological characters mm-hmm. from from different stories and uh really pretty intense like oh it's like ancient cg man like yeah. watching what they were doing right. for the cosmetics and turning people either you know i don't know if it'll only be men playing uh, female figures or if it also can be female figures that play men. I forget. Um, but the one that I saw was uh, this pretty pretty intense story uh, of uh, uh, Ravana, the, you know, the ancient king um, uh, who steals um, uh, Sita. I don't know if you're familiar with Raman Sita, this, this whole story. Has like Hanuman jumping across uh the 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 water from south india to sri lanka have you mm-hmm. heard any of these stories before i might have that one might have gotten touched on but it's been Long, yeah years, well, so. it's also yeah. like it, there's a whole mythology yeah, there. It's yeah like it's a deep cosmos there's a lot of stories yeah so effectively you know to 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 not belabor it it's basically like there is this uh this serpanica is like this this demon goddess so to speak uh and she tries to trick some of the characters and there's a very famous uh man who plays as a he's one of the most i guess he's one of the more famous dancers of this character but the way that they had him transform into serpanica there was like fire blood and gore (laughs) and it's like stuff is like flying everywhere (laughs) and it was like you know these are like pretty epic performances and they'll be like three hours three and a half hours and you're just, you know, it was dope. It's, like, outside in the kind of, like, this special area of the temple. And, um, you know, it's just it's just lots of music, really powerful stuff. Anyway, I got to see that there, and it was, like, the first time I'd been able to see either of those those dance styles 
uh, in person. Were and you just as a spectator, or were you performing? As no, well? no. In this case, I was a spectator. Okay. Um, no, I performed for this institution that was there, but then I got to watch some of it while I was there. But uh, uh, what was the point I was trying to make? It was about the oh oh. One of the coolest things about it is just like the the age wise is that it's like the the ancientness of it. I forget if it's Kudiyatham or if it's Kathakali, but one of them has one of the longest standing still spoken versions of sanskrit like mm. when people say that sanskrit's like a dead language it's like well it existed in this art form and people like recite and sing in this mixture of of um of multiple languages but sanskrit's part of it mm. and i guess it kind of blew a lot of scholars minds because it was like you know from like the kind of eurocentric like academic model it was like oh sanskrit's a dead language like right. no one speaks it and it's yeah. like well, did you go south? Because right. it's like it's still being spoken. Like, totally. what do you mean? Hold on a second. So I think there's been a lot of other scholarly stuff around it that it's like kind of changed the conception mm-hmm. that you get to hear. It would be like having, uh, you know, some early form of Latin. I mean, not I mean, early form of Latin. Latin's pretty old, mm-hmm. but like, uh, like whether contemporary scholars are trying to like re kind of create how it sounds now versus like being able to hear some version of it from like 1500 years ago yeah um, or a thousand years ago even Mm -hmm. and i think in this regard unless i'm totally off base so don't quote me on this but this (laughs) is my understanding of it because it was pretty fascinating uh was that there's this form of sanskrit that's still being spoken from like a thousand years ago where this dance form was really like becoming a, a deeper tradition the dance form's been like a sacred vault yeah, to like to save the language or to. to it's funny when you said that because it brought into mind like Sanskrit's also something that I feel like is kept alive by like tattoos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, people will write you know? it. Like, like yeah, it's yeah. such a pop, It's such a common thing that you meet someone that's like, oh, it's the Sanskrit word for transformation. Uh, or, you know, I think I thought about getting like Anicca on my. You know, after my vipassana. You know, like, are you familiar with Anicca? Like, no, it's like the. I think it's the Sanskrit word for impermanence. Impermanence. That's a pretty powerful word to get. And I thought just something about like tattooing impermanence permanently yeah, a, on my skin. Like it would made me laugh inside. For sure. Of like, course. Of course. <laughs> There's definitely an irony there, but like well-intentioned. Yeah. Yeah. But the, um, you didn't do it though. No. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I like looked up like I was like looking up Dharma wheels, uh. looking up like with the Sanskrit word would be and then i think like not that i was it wasn't even that i like was necessarily against it like i still feel like it would be a cool tattoo to get yeah maybe i do get it someday but there was also something about like putting like a symbol on my body that i don't fully understand and like I'd almost want to figure out how to read even if i don't like not saying i could learn to read sanskrit you could I could, but like, I'd want to at least be able to look at the strokes uh, and, and know the, the sounds that each shape was making, rather than just putting like a, a word on me that I. It's like, oh, that like shape means this idea, which is cool. I just, I think that's why I never felt as like motivated to to get it attached. To me. No, I feel that. I think that's a pretty. I think it's a pretty reasonable and respectful <laughs> way to go about it. Cause yeah, you have to trust somebody at the end of the day. Yeah. Plus also then for the artist who's tattooing it on you. Oh yeah. You, you got to hope that they like understand exactly sure. what you want. Exactly. The stroke's not in the right place. All yeah. of a sudden it's like, yeah. well, yeah. you got dog ass, on your <laughs> yeah. d- dog butt on your, Yeah, you know, I don't, yeah, first that's, 
I'm trying to think because it's like uh nah, anyway it's it, it's just it was just really cool and it was a really sweet idea or something to experience while I was there but yeah I mean this is to go back to what you were saying just being in the mountains it's like India is so massive being able to explore all just these different sections between like massive jungle to like really deep desert to then you know like beautiful mountainous terrains to you know the Annapurna mountain range it's mm-hmm. like dude the Himalaya it's like one of the it's the tallest mountain range on the planet right so it's really that big that's crazy i could like picture you know you always hear pictures don't do it justice but like it's it's honestly the biggest thing i've ever seen are these like even seeing the first range which is you know not the, even the big biggest part but like the contrast like i don't know anywhere else in the world where you can go where there's such contrast like wow. usually you're like 20 30 miles of foothills then you get up to the high peaks but it was it's like just, bam. on my right, <laughs> just gets there's you. plains. On my left is like, you know, Never 15, ending. 16, 17,000 foot peaks. Yeah, mountains going into the heavens. It's crazy. But um, now at 35 minutes into the podcast, oh, I yeah. want to <laughs> introduce my guest here, uh, Monik Khan. Um, for, for those out there, you know, hard to believe that they exist, but people that aren't aware of you or your music oh how do you describe yourself as an artist like what would be the words you would use to describe your art and what you do well uh i focus on classical music from north india i'm like looking at the camera as if i'm talking to other people at the moment but i'm talking to you you can talk to me yeah yeah classical music from north india this is what we play we being my family and uh it's something that's been basically passed down in my family since the 16th century which is pretty powerful so uh it came from my grandfather to my father and then to myself and to many of my siblings and um and then, yeah, it's the instrument that I play is called the sarod, and it's like a 25-string. I mean, you've seen it, but mm-hmm. you should definitely look it up. You can spell <laughs> it S-A-R-O-D or yeah. S-A-R-O-D-E. It looks like sarodi, but it's sarod. And uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful instrument that looks almost like – they oftentimes will refer to it like an Indian lute. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that's that Eurocentricity, man. Right. Dude, everything's related back. So it's a sarod, and it's like a – but it does kind of have the same sort of body. It's basically elongated this way. It has a steel plate. Uh, it's made out of like a solid piece of wood or two pieces of wood. They'll okay. hollow it out. They'll put the plate on it, have a skin head around it, and it just makes this really resonant sound because it's got 25 strings, mm. and there's no frets, and we play with like a coconut shell. Um, although people have made all types of different materials for the picks now, but, uh, is it the one that has the big metal, like where the frets would be? There's like that metal plate or is that the sitar? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I always it's, mix those two up, the sitar and the sarod, well, even to this day. Well, you know, it's like definitely pretty, uh, I mean, I think sitar is the most, sitar is the most synonymous, I think with Indian classical okay. because everybody knows the sitar because of Ravi Shankar and uh, for Pandit Ravi Shankar and then George Harrison of the Beatles played mm-hmm. it. And that's okay. like, you know, all the stereotypes of Indian music generally we'll use like a sitar and then it's like even here it's like well this is a vena but um that's a tanpura uh, <laughs> i'm looking for images which you can't <laughs> see on the screen right now yeah, yeah. but anyway it's sitar and sarod are like brother and sister okay with the sarod being the brother they say gotcha um it has a bit of a bassier tone uh but it has this steel plate yes so that's the one that you play like a guitar but you um don't have any frets and then you slide with your finger pad and your fingernail on the steel plate Mm. with the string and that's what makes the sound but you have 25 you have four main playing strings well and 
we in our style, there's different styles of sarod. There's like different families, which we will call like a garana. It's like a school, basically, mm-hmm. of a style of music. And so in our garana, our family style, our sarod has 25 strings. My grandfather and his brother, um, I believe it's, I should know this, but it's Ayad Ali Khan Saab, I'm pretty sure. Uh, him and his brother, which is my grandfather, they were both like musical inventors and craftsmen. And so they just tinkered and tinkered and kept creating new instruments. And so they made this version of the sarod that is a little bit longer, has more pegs. And so it has more resonance because of these extra strings. Whereas there's uh, a couple other major schools, major families of this music for Sorod specifically. And I believe one of them has, I might be wrong, but I believe one has like 19 strings and I think one has 21 or 23. I should know this and I do, but I'm blanking right now. So I clearly don't know it, actually. I need to go look that up. Whoops. Yeah. But uh, beautiful. They all have different sounds, and they'll have slightly different shapes. And so each one kind of caters to the style of the family and what their music sort of uh, – the ways that they approach the sarod and development of the music. So if you were – that's a long way to describe what I do. But yeah, I love it. It's, yeah, I love dude. It. It's Indian classical music from this North This is long-form conversation. Hey, you can take as much time yeah. as you want. Yeah, yeah, we did talk about food for like 35 yeah, minutes, yeah. which and we didn't even scratch this. We scratched the surface. <laughs> it's classical music, so we call it Hindustani classical because in India, there's two major forms. Well, you can just basically break it up to like the northern style and like southern style. So like it's uh, Hindustani for the north and then Carnatic music for the south. Mm. And it's crazy because the two have uh, bases basically in the same foundation and the history of it, of where it created and where it came from. But over the course of, you know, thousands, hundreds to thousands of years, the musics have really sort of diverged from each other. And so Carnatic music is quite different from Hindustani, and Hindustani is quite different from Carnatic music, even though we'll have a lot of similarities in, like, the types of melodies that we play. Mm-hmm. But it's even the approach of how we show ornaments and slides uh, to the way the same raga, the, our form of music, or the, the, the form of the melodies, uh, might even sound. Uh, we might have the same name for it, but they may sound quite different, or they're based on something that existed from a long time ago. So Hind- Hindustani classical music is what I do, although we were talking before it off camera about, you know, both having a history in, you know, electronic production and yeah. kind of kind of getting our teeth wet on, like, you know, making hip-hop and electronica and stuff like that. Yeah, I'd rem- rem- I had this mo- memory that came up when we were having that co- conversation of uh, it was like such a Bay Area moment. You know, I think this was like in, in my early 20s and I went I saw a performance here. We're, we're sitting here in the Ali Akbar Khan School of Music in San Rafael, California. And I was here at a, at a show and I was watching Shout Out Nilan. Our, oh, our, yeah, yeah, our yeah. Friend, your, your, you know, Basically music brother. brother. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and I was listening to him play the tabla and. I was like, dude, there's some Bay Area hip hop in that top. Uh-huh. Like you can, you know, you can take, put the boy in a new tradition, but like you can't unhear the music that's inspired you in your life. Absolutely. And I was listening to you as well. And I heard in both of your guys's styles of playing, like there were pieces in there that were like, they spoke to me, you know, not just as like, you know, looking from the outside in to a, to a, you know, a musical tradition that I was a stranger to, but also like I was able to hear like, Oh, there's like some of where I'm from in that music. And it was like, it was this like kind of philosophical aha. Or I was like, Oh yeah. Like 
we are like no matter what kind of music you play like you can't get away from the stuff that you grew up listening to and it's oh, yeah. all experience yeah i don't even know if i would want to either right because it's like there's so many good musics out there mm-hmm. and then uh you know for my family in particular because of our mom being you know born and raised in the in the u.s she grew up you know in the hippie era so it's like we grew up having like Jimi hendrix and um uh you know mamas and the papas mm-hmm. and just so grateful many Grateful dead oh yeah yeah i mean it's funny that like you know we we didn't actually listen to the grateful dead the dead was actually though my mom was is dear friends with mickey hart who's you know the drummer and it's like you know uh those guys those guys um that there's so much uh uh, connection between the musics all throughout the Bay Area that it's just it was just a crazy time. So mm-hmm. like we got to growing up, we got to have like this really wonderful kind of blend of like so many different styles of music, and then this like deeply, deeply uh, uh, rich version of Indian classical from our father. And uh, yeah, it was it's it's super fun, man. I mean, yeah, I, I I feel super fortunate that I got and Nilan too. All of us that you know kind of grew up in the Bay and grew up in this music, um, got to have this really kind of varied and sort of all this whole multitude of different musical styles to sort of draw from, while having like a sincere focus on Indian classical. But what's the in in the music like itself in in, in the style of classical that you play? Um, What's the role that the sarod plays in in the music? Like, is it like a, the melody line? It, yeah. How, how does it you know how does it serve the song? I guess. Yeah. So it's you know okay. Indian classical because there's a bunch of different styles again. Uh, but if you look at it specifically, like the way that we're trained in it, there will be generally like a, a main soloist. So whether or not it's a vocalist or whether it's sarod, we do okay for. Yeah, we're good. Just ignore me. I'm just fussing, oh. <laughs> but I'm listening to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No problem. Making sure the batteries are okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, if you have, like, you'll have, like, a main vocalist or main, you know, instrumentalist, so to so to speak. So if it's just, you can kind of think of it as, like, soloist, tabla, and then, like, tanpura is kind of one of the ideas. If it's if it's an instrumental side, if it's on, uh, like, sarod would be the main kind of lead. And then you have tabla, which is keeping all the rhythm. And is accompanying that way, and then you'll have like tanpura as Will well. you explain just what a tabla is for people that yes, never so heard yeah, yeah. So tabla is are are two sets of drums, but they'll call it one. Basically, tabla is actually the the kind of brighter drum, which traditionally is played uh, with the right hand. Uh, the baya is played with the left hand, the bass, and so. But the, together, they're also called tabla. Gotcha. Um, that's like I mean that's that's one way of looking at it. That's probably is the, the baya, the one with that has all yeah, the slides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. That's definitely that's baya. So, um, I mean, there's other names actually traditionally formed too, but that's how you'll hear it. So tabla are these two drums basically together, and they are just insanely. Uh, 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 there's so much you can do with them because it's like that's one of the fun things about Indian classical, especially with tabla, is that all the all the notes that you play on the drums you can recite. There's a language form, so you know bol means to speak, uh, bolo, depending on where you're coming from in India. But the bols for tabla are specific notes. So there's like da, terikita, uh, tin. There's all these different ones, and once you put them together, you're basically creating this this sort of musical language. But everything you say, you can play. 
and then everything you play you can say yeah so you get this like really awesome recitation where of course that's another one that'll obviously people for like hip-hop and stuff if you start getting into these crazy uh, rhythm cycles where they'll mm-hmm. start reciting all these things it can really of course bring all sorts of parallels to to lyricism and all this kind of stuff um, totally. and like really crazy rhythmic rappers which not to get into a segue made me always fall in love with rappers that were like way crazy with rhythm Pheromonch uh-huh. is like one of my favorites of yeah. all time because he would get into these really crazy ways of just going all over the rhythm and extending sounds and really, really fun kind of like lyrical wordplay and all this kind of stuff. But for Tabla, uh, that's what it sounds like. So you have this bass hand on the left generally, the the brighter side is on the right, and then together the Tabla, and it's what holds everything down. Yeah, um, I remember uh, Nilan like reciting some of the, the vocal exercises to me. And uh, it was just like... Dude, it sounds so similar to the drum. Like it, it changed how I think about. Like when I would listen to tabla, I'd think so much more like as the human voice, right? Which I think is part of it, right? Is like really associating in your body, like the you know, it's the talking drum or the speaking drum. Yes, the, you know, and it you do start to hear that language um, and those patterns and. Yeah, it's really it's pretty fascinating. Like you know, there are obviously I'm forgetting which part of africa has it but there's some really famous like actual talking drums mm-hmm. and i think that's what you were you, what you were hinting at right like where the drumming itself is making sounds that are in the actual language so by hearing the drums you can actually be talking and expressing um i and, know in the caribbean too i think like in in uh, cuba there's like um santeria part of like the santeria music has like a talking drum involved with it I well think. it makes me wonder if though through slavery that right yeah it's over, like probably right? some afro-caribbean like, kind of yeah because i think there was even like i think and I'm, i mean i should know this for like anthropology and stuff like that but <laughs> it's been a minute since i've like read up on all the history but oh, i'm yeah. pretty sure there's a reason why those drums were eventually taken away right uh as a form of control mm-hmm. because it was like they didn't want people communicating with each other especially when it turns out that you actually could communicate with each other through the drums. So tabla is like a step away from that. It's like you can totally speak it and you can hear it. And yes, like you said, there's a, when you hear someone reciting it and then you hear it being played, it's, it's really fun to have that kind of connection. Cause we don't necessarily get to hear that. Like if you have a full, like a drum kit or something, if someone's on like an actual kit, you don't necessarily get to hear them saying all the sounds and then hear them play it. People can, mm-hmm. of course you can get like beatboxing and stuff like right. that too. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's just like one of the things that was built into the culture. Um, but then the Sarod itself is a lead instrument in that regard. So generally what it'll be, unless it's like a duet with another, well, it's kind of funny cause they call it, they don't call it a duet, even though you're playing with a drummer, it'll be like you're a soloist even though you have a drummer. Mm-hmm. And so there's like a whole long history of tabla kind of being looked down upon a little bit in that way. And I don't know if that's a, if that's like a, a, a sort of ongoing remnant of that, where it's not considered like a duet, even though you're playing with another musician, they'll consider it like a duet or a jugalbandi. They'll also say, if you have like sarod and sitar, or you'll have like violin and sitar or violin and voice, this type of stuff where it'll be like a duet now. But I don't know why it's not called a duet. I usually just think of it that way. Is that, that like way. a Western? You think that's a Western artifact? Or? <sighs> that's a great question. There's like there's some pretty deep history where it goes into periods of time where the music, because especially in the North, you had uh, obviously the massive Persian influence in uh, the Mughal courts and things like that. There were periods of time where certain emperors uh, basically called the music 
and dance forms and all these things, harem, of basically being like of the devil, so to speak. Mm. And so the music was like frowned upon and it was like basically kind of banished from the public spheres, uh, not even public spheres, just every sphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was kept alive in uh, sort of like the the kind of courtesans, like sort of like the red light districts. Um now this gets there's obviously more information than I can like go into like I'm not trying yeah. to give you like talk no, about no it. I'm it's loving historical. this this okay, is okay. exactly what I want to talk about this is it's really crazy stuff yeah so basically like the Baijis which are like and I don't want to be disrespectful I'm forgetting exactly I mean it's like basically like a courtesan it's like a you know in the red light district so mm-hmm. this was where certain musical forms were kept alive so you had people that were dancing singing playing tabla sarangi. And then there was this crazy thing where, like, as the music... And I don't remember exactly how the transition happened, but once the music became, like, not harem again, it was kind of re... Sort of... Uh, re... Kind of... What do you say? Uh, accepted back Yeah, re-accepted the, into, yeah. into the actual, Court like... Or... Thank you for saying... That's exactly what I was trying to yeah, say. Yeah, thank yeah. you. You got me. Uh, once it was, there was this sort of, uh, like way of looking down upon some of those instruments as if they were considered like lower because they were in like the red light districts gotcha. at that time, which doesn't really make any sense. Cause you're like, well, dude, like, first of all, that's, <laughs> you know, once you, that brings into a whole contemporary thing of looking at like sex work in the right. modern times and yeah. it being condemned as like a negative versus, uh, looking at it in a different, from a different perspective. But, you know, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years ago, mm-hmm. Uh, but still, the mu- certain instruments were frowned upon. Like after that, they had this kind of air of like being. I think I don't. I guess it is. Yeah, just being kind of considered lesser than some of the other instruments. And was, so, was this all prior to like the British colonial era, the Raj era? You know, it's a really good question. If it ties into this, yes. When it when it what my understanding is because of this certain period of time, it had to have happened before the British colonial period. Um, because this was still during the Mughal emp- Empire, but like okay. now, but now my my history here is getting a little uh-huh. a little blurry here. I'm not exactly sure when this happened. I just know that there were whole periods that my dad used to talk about where the music almost disappeared for for decades and decades and decades, and would have died if it wasn't kept alive for these certain groups of people who were continuing the whole practice of it all. Which to- in these days, like the way that culture shifted, I think it actually makes. It gives the music a, 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 an additional level of clout or, you know, sexiness or <laughs> intrigue, you know, that like it's like the because that was I had this question for you, you know, as we were talking earlier. And I think this is the time this is a good time to go into it. But like I was just curious that the, this tradition of classical Indian music, you know, traditionally, was it the you know, did it live was it like court music yeah, versus yeah. like folk music? And it sounds like what you're saying is that it's kind of woven through both, you know, it's lived in both communities through the, the history of it or am yeah. I getting that wrong? I don't, no, 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 you're right. I mean, the thing is, it's like, if you go back to the, like through the mythology of the music, there's one idea is that it comes from the divine. Mm-hmm. So it was like passed down from basically the divine into these sages of like, you know, thousands of years ago who then basically transmitted it to the rest of the people so the idea is that these ragas like our form of music that we play and sing um has existed 
basically time immemorial. It's frequencies that have existed through time and space. And so it gets pretty esoteric once you start looking at it that way, that it's yeah. like all melodies have always existed. Right. Um, and then it gets it gets passed down through from like from the divine to people who then pass it on and on and on and on. And it goes like this way. But then if you're looking at it more just like historically and from what there are records of and what you can see with people, you had like folk melodies that people would have been singing and playing forever. And then some of those get brought into a classical system, which was very much within the courts. So that's one of the interesting, th interesting things with the, with kind of the British Raj, like with the colonial period is that the music went from so, so, uh, in the early 40s, what is it, 43 or 45 when the independence was? Basically, at that point is when the music, as far as my understanding goes, that the music starts to shift from outside of specifically in the kind of royal sphere to getting put back out to the people. Mm. It's not that people did, couldn't hear it in other places. It's just that it was like that's where the music, the, like the highest caliber of it was sort of kept. Um in the classical system. And so then there was kind of almost this sort of relearning of it into the, into the public sphere as the music starts to, to transmit out into the public again. And it's crazy. It's like, there's this whole cutthroat aspect of it from back in the day where it was like, this was your livelihood. So if you took on a disciple, you would save the real jewels of the music for like your blood kin yeah. or, may, or maybe the best and best of your disciples. But the idea was that you didn't want to lose your position in the court because if mm. you did, that was your livelihood. Right. So you have all these crazy stories of people trying to like steal other people's compositions and somebody's song or somebody's understanding of a raga trying to like trick them into giving it to you or finding ways of getting it. And, um, uh, anyway, to go, I'm, I'm, I'm tangents upon tangents, that's dude. What, so dude, that's what the, this art form is all about. The <laughs> tangents, you know, it did go through the folk and classical system. There's a bunch yeah. of classical ragas that like you'll play in like a, you know, a classical development. And I understand that that doesn't may not make, make any sense. The difference between like a folk development or a classical one, but basically like there were these old melodies that were taken up that could have been like lullabies. There's one like in particular called Ragpilu, which is a lullaby that used to be sung as a lullaby, mm -hmm. but then it got brought into like the classical system and it's just kind of spread all over the place. And now is a fully like classically treated raga, but it has folk origins. There's a lot of ragas that potentially have this, like I've read, and then of course it's really hard because some of these things are like thousands of years old. Yeah. Some of them are hundreds of years old. And then things change over time, and then, you know, it's kind of like language in that way. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you're not even sure if the rag that we know it, we know as, well, when we think of a certain rag like today, is that what they were singing 500 years ago? Was it any different? In some cases, we have records where, like, notes shifted, and you're like, dude, that's crazy. So the version that we sing, and people are like, this is the way you do it. It's like, well, if you go back, like, 400 years or something, that is not the way you did it. Right. And then it enters into this whole realm of, like, you know, in conversation of like authenticity, um, really rigorous training and people are so diehard and such sticklers for playing everything perfect. And mm -hmm. it's like, well, dang, but what if the version that we're playing isn't even the right version? <laughs> and, and who then, has the authority to say that it is? Yeah. And then it's also like <laughs> India is so massive that you have this like almost like we jokingly will call it like Raga Telephone where it's like one dude played it, one dude, one like master had the melody, mm -hmm. like pretty locked in, we'll say, has some disciples who learn it. And then maybe they learned a little bit. Maybe they learned a lot. 
they go off to some other part of India and they start playing it and other people hear that version of it. And then you're just like, man, like, so now you have all these different forms and this is kind of how the styles sort of originated these different schools or Guranas, like I was saying. Mm -hmm. And so you'll have like, each Gurana might have a completely different take on the same rag. It might have the same basis, but it's kind of like language in that way where there'll be like different dialects. There could be different slang. There could be different ways of, um, in the case of the music, it's like how you even express how the melody might sound. And uh, yeah, dude, it's, it's pretty fascinating. It's, it's, it, it's interesting. I see so many parallels like with, with jazz, uh, you know, when you think about you have this kind of uni- unity of classical, you know, classical trained composers in the quote unquote court of the time uh, and the folk blues musicians, you know, blending, uh, you know, blending them, th- their music together and jazz being birthed out of that and being considered kind of like it, jazz was like the music they played in the red light districts. Uh, and now like it's become so legitimized as that like you go to like the fancy elite cocktail party and they have a jazz band. Right. And I know my brother like going to school, you know, in the East Bay encountered, had a lot of feelings come up being in like an institutional art school that was teaching a tradition that he also at the same time felt was like so removed from the character of the innovators themselves who created the form, you know, like, can you take like the jazz player out of, can you take the player out of the art form without the art form, like losing its, its tie to like the, the human, human aspect or mm. the, I, I, he's, he's waxed along about these, these topics, but I'm For seeing, sure. as you talk about it, there's like, I think that that's an interesting case study into, you know, the mass psychology and the anthropology of like how music moves through culture, how, how it shifts from, you know, these, we're seeing it with hip hop, right? We, we, when we grew up, hip hop was still kind of fringe and edgy and like, you know, it was like something that old old folks would like cross their arms about and be like this is noise yeah well they'd be like oh that gangster rap right and now look at it it's in everything every commercial has a trap beat every it's become such you know it's kind of like the mono sound monoculture sound of the american identity in a lot of ways you know whereas rock and roll was once filled that spot and um so it's it's cool to hear of us you know to hear this, this kind of similar pattern that is taking place over centuries rather than decades and you know to see some of the similarities i guess yeah i mean it's uh i think that's like one of the most i mean that's one of the reasons why i even liked anthropology well it's not one of the reasons it's one of the it's probably the reason why i liked anthropology so much growing up was just that it's uh all the things that connect us and like how i like knowing how they how they came about why they are the way that they are uh so with indian classical yeah it's like um and then also growing up next to, you know, with my father being one of the greatest sources in the music like ever, mm-hmm. it was kind of nuts because we just had access to just this tremendous amount of information. And Can you explain just who your father was? Also, I feel like we got to give some context. Oh, yeah, to sure, sure. So uh, my father, um, yeah, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> his, uh, his name is, well... Ustad Ali Akbar Khan, although he liked to, he preferred, he didn't prefer the term Ustad, which is uh, one of the ways that we say master. Uh, he preferred maestro. His father was an Ustad, and he said he never felt, if his father was an Ustad, then, you know, how could he be? But um, my dad, uh, 
learned from my grandfather. So it's kind of this this kind of tag team, we'll say. My grandfather, Baba Acharya Aladdin Kansab, is considered to be potentially the most influential figure of Indian classical music, Hindustani classical music, in the last century, which is pretty insane considering we've already talked about how long this music goes back, how ancient it is, and just what he managed to do as far as kind of piecing a lot of things together and bringing new or, or kind of the way that he opened up a lot of the the ways you would hear the music especially in instrumental but he was uh, just this absolutely brilliant like monster of a mu- musician and then he trained my father uh, in this music as well and uh, my aunt and and many beautiful Indian classical musicians some of the best ever were trained by my grandfather so then fast forward to my father uh, Maestro Ali Akbar Khan, he's just this stalwart figure. He came to the States first back in the mid-50s and 55, but he um, he recorded the first LP of Indian classical music um, ever and then really helped him, Ravi Shankar, uh, Ravi Ji, rather, uh, and, and a number of others really helped to push Indian classical music from India to everywhere else, essentially. Okay. That's kind of him in a, in, a, in a nutshell. And then he was just this brilliant musician. Just, I mean, you know, it's one of those things that the older I get and the more I learn and the better I get in my craft and in this music, the more just yeah. mind-blowing my dad is, dude. I'm just like, every time I hear him, it's just I am never not just blown away by what he did. It's just because it's like, it's like the more nuance I understand, the more subtleties that I can see. Mm. It's just like, it's, it's just mind blowing every time, dude. Cause it's not even just that it's like intellectually fascinating or crazy. It's that it's just like always moves me. And it's like, yes, he is my dad and I loved him and I love him. And I'm also biased on the sound of the Sarod because right. it's one of the dopest to me. Was that his main instrument? Yeah. Yeah. That okay. was his main one. And that's what he trained us on, but it's just everything together. His ideas, the amount of like just the, the spectrum of emotions he'd be able to take you, uh, that he'd be able to like show you through the sound and the kind of like journeys you would physically, mentally, emotionally go on in the music. And, um, I think anybody who's connected to his music has had one of these experiences and it's just super, super powerful. Um, you know, as I'm saying this, I notice the light is getting lower and lower mm-hmm. in here. I don't know if that, do you need the oh, lights I, I, That's why I was moving around. Got I, it, got, I got it. Got you were adjusting adjusted things. adjusted to the best that I can and we'll, uh, if we need to turn these lights on at some point, we can do that. But yeah, there is that light above. It'll bounce yeah. off this way. I don't know if it'll work for you, but. It's still looking pretty good now, but cool. I'll let you know when, you got when things get a little too dark. Um, You're your um yeah i mean i listen to your dad's music almost every day because it's like wow. one of my i mean i have this one song which i, m- I remember telling you years ago i was like garden of dreams man oh, yeah. i love that song and you're like yeah that's like his western stuff or whatever <laughs> you know like okay cool but no i've like uh you know i started i think listening <laughs> listening to your dad's music in my early twenties, like, cool. and it became really like and this, maybe this is sacrilegious, but like, it was like very utilitarian oh, no. for me. Oh, that's not sacrilegious. Like, like as I've gotten older, like music, cause I come from a musical tradition as well. Right. Of course. Background. And, you know, for most of my life, it's been the most important art form to me. And I've noticed over the last few years, especially as I've gotten more into like podcasts and, 
more in love. I, I, a lot of my like valuable listening time has gotten sucked in that direction. I've found that music in this in this epoch in this era of my life is taking on a really utilitarian quality. Like I'm listening to music for effect rather than as like a general experience. Oh, that sounds pretty focused. Yeah, and so like the classical Indian and and you know I'm like both through my personal connection to you and your family, uh, like, like, yeah, I'm going to listen to Ali Akbar Khan. You yeah, know, cool. there's such a wide range to dive into, but this is like something I have like a personal connection to. And he's also, there's a reason why your dad is so yeah, celebrated. We yeah. uh, so, you know, it is like a, a music that to me is like very much about going into an altered state of consciousness. And like when I do imbibe it, that's kind of like, I mean, it's not something I'm like holding on to or forcing, but it's like part of what the experience is about to me. Like that's how I kind of intake it. It's almost like this ceremonial experience of music, I guess, if if you will. Yeah, I mean, that's the you know, it's it's kind of crazy because we, I think, anybody who resonates with music obviously uh, has many experiences <laughs> over their lifetime yeah. of listening to something and having whatever mood comes out of it or it's like you know the experience of being in the sad state you listen to a song that pumps you up and you're like mm. dude let's go versus like the opposite where you're like really happy you put a sad song on mm. and you're like oh man like i gotta like <laughs> i gotta sit for a bit um but how quick it can change your entire mood and so yeah. my grandfather his old thing was that music is the quickest route to the divine there's even like a, a saying uh, Nad Brahma, which is basically sound is divine or sound is God. Uh, but it's like, you know, whether or not you are, are religious or not, the idea is that it taps into a higher state of existence. And uh, that sound is what can bring you there almost immediately. And that's one of those things that I think is pretty intuitive. A lot of people have had that experience. Um, at least not, I mean, it doesn't mean that we've all like reached enlightenment by hearing a song like, mm -hmm. wow, I have, uh, I have awakened, but I mean like, yeah, we've all felt different things. And so that's one of the major focuses of Indian classical is to make you kind of feel that. And then, you know, for, for my dad, the thing that he was, so like a lot of the stuff that we say, it's just like, we just keep referring back to like, oh yeah, our dad said this, our dad said that, mm -hmm. but it's like his dad said that to him. And it's just this kind of unbroken lineage idea where it's like, if you just keep going back generation to generation, you're just using this ancient knowledge, so yeah. to speak. And that's the, the word is just being transmitted down all these, all these generations. Was, was Sarod an instrument that made its way down the, like, is that, was that the primary instrument of your grandfather and so on going back or? It became it. So my grandfather's nuts. Like it, it's like as, as like as crazy as our dad was and how beautiful of a musician he was crazy in a positive way, yeah, not yeah. like actually insane or yeah, anything. Yeah. Although you could use that word also. He was a musician. I know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know. I know. Yeah. There is, all that too and that doesn't there's no uh he had he had plenty to say on that but yeah. he was like our grandfather basically took everything he ever learned in his life musically and tried to shape it all into the version of the sarod that my dad played and so my dad's whole upbringing was basically this mission of my grandfather to instill everything he had musically every sound he could think of to make every instrument he could play into the sound of the sarod and basically just sort of 
that's why my dad practiced like 18 hours a day. It was like a form of child abuse, basically, mm -hmm. because it was insane for like 20 years. Your dad um, was your grandfather's great project? Effectively, yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of like, dude, I think of it almost like, you know, when they talk about a kid raised by wolves kind of thing to yeah. see like how would they develop language without having the language being spoken to them, right? Okay. Like would they act like Mowgli from the Jungle Book? What yeah. is, how does it work, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's sort of like, yeah, my dad was sort of that experiment. Super unethical, um, <laughs> but, you know, and like, you know, child protective services, right. all this kind of stuff. But, you know, um, in the but it, it was effective, man. I uh, mean, my dad came out this massively brilliant person. Yeah. And, you know, that's a whole other story. How did he feel about that? Well, that's, that's the other story. Yeah. So if you go on that, basically the craziest thing that I can kind of sum it up as is that. So my dad was 50 when his dad passed away. And this is 1972. And he said that after his dad died, he realized the gift that his dad had given him uh, through the music and then realized how much love that my grandfather actually was basically trying to just, you know, instill inside him in yeah. every possible way. It was really hard. But I, the idea is that he said he fell in love with he, he, he fell in love with the music for like the first time in his 50s, which blows my mind because if you hear all those recordings his entire life imagine that dude it's like right. imagine being 50 and literally the thing that you know more than anything in the world you didn't even necessarily love it was just what you knew how to do sure. more than anything yeah and then coming to love it at that age and the journey begins <laughs> basically yeah and it's like that just trips me out because it also then was the way the fact that my dad managed to not be just this completely traumatized broken person after that entire life of that mm -hmm. it's pretty powerful dude but yeah. then he realized how much his dad loved him and i think that was his way at least um of of coming to terms with everything and so yeah that's what happened to to him um but uh, you would ask about, you know, what was my, my – so my grandfather's main instrument, the first thing is that, like, his story is one of the craziest things. That's like, it's just – when I think about that as my family, I'm like, yeah. oh, yeah, like, all this crazy stuff happened. And uh -huh. I'm like, dude, we have these journals. We know how it happened. Wow. First-hand accounts of all this crazy stuff from other family and, and members in India. It's like he ran away when he was eight. He ran away from his home to study music, and it was because, like – well, this is like dude, there's like this should be a movie. Uh, it should be a movie someday. Someday, dude. Yeah, my my family has worked. My mom and my brother have spent a lot of time. My sister on like trying to develop like you know screenplays and 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 uh, what do you call it? Like a, a treatment, a treatment for it, and all this kind of stuff. And it's a great story. So uh, I can't do anything. Long story short, I suppose when it comes to this, just kind tell of stuff. it, dude. This yeah, is yeah, what yeah, this, yeah. This is a container <laughs> for just to, what you're doing. So. You've had to remind me like three times of that, dude. All right, thanks. I feel. Yeah. I feel I feel secure. No, dude, you're, we got all the time that you, my day's clear. Cool, cool, cool. We got all the time. Talk, talk, talk. Yeah, I'm just like, to me, this is uh, one of the great, like, fountains of lore. Dude, it's crazy In lore. this part of the world and, like, yeah. getting to grow up in in Marin. I was, you know, I've been, always been aware of, like, the hearsay right. around the, <laughs> the Khan family. And I know that it's, like, a deep and very rich history. So, for me, like... One of the things that this podcast is all about is I, I consider this like a place to store this information, Very right? Cool. So like the fact that you're willing to come on and like share this as much as you want to give me, dude, I'm, I'm on board. Right, I think right. This is awesome. I'm super <laughs> fascinated. I'm tuned in. So 
what's uh, give me the legacy what 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 do we got here what's yeah, the story yeah. all about oh well that's that's very cool um yeah so dude i mean the thing is it's like he grew up and so basically he was a young boy and so around i don't remember exactly how old he was whether he was like six seven or eight but eight when he runs away so before that on his way to school, he kept stopping at this one temple where these people were singing as he was walking by. And eventually he heard them singing. And I don't know if it was one time or if it was over the course of time that he decided that he didn't need to go to school. He had to go listen to more of them singing. He would just stop going. He, so he stops. He just goes and sits there and like all day sits while these people sing. And he was so just basically infatuated with it. And he was so drawn to it that he couldn't do anything else. Over Some time passes and the headmaster is like, you know, hey – you know, uh, Aladdin wasn't coming to class. Like, where has he been? Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, we send him to school every day. <laughs> so the family, like, I think the, I think they're my, I think my great grandfather follows him and finds him basically sitting at this temple listening. And he was like, oh man, okay. So he basically bans music uh, from my grandfather and says, you can't, you have to focus on your studies. Can I pause real quick? Yeah. So just, just to, for my own understanding, because I remember you saying that it's like this, Music goes back in your family like many generations. Was his was uh, was there like a misgeneration or like was that chain broken somehow? Or no, it's actually you know I probably should have clarified it. It's like we always talk about it being broken down in the family, but what it is, it's the it's like the musical family lineage uh, okay. has been basically unbroken. So in the bloodline, so I was saying how back in the day people would like jealously guard all the secrets of the music. Right. And so they would only give you the real jewels if you were blood related. Um, and maybe if you were a really good disciple, they'd give you some of it, but they wouldn't give you everything because they didn't want their family to lose out on the potential uh, patronage of the King or the queen, depending mm-hmm. on where you were. So my grandfather ends up getting accepted as a disciple from this, one of the the great legends of music, Muhammad Wazir Khan Saab, and like, um, who was uh, a vena master and vena being this instrument here, which almost kind of looks like a sitar. Of course, you can't see this on the camera, mm-hmm. but if you look at the goddess Saraswati, who is uh, kind of the, she is the, the basically goddess of, of music and knowledge this way, you'll see her holding an instrument. This is a vena. It's an old, old style of uh, instrument from India. But um, he learned from him and got accepted into the family. And so in that gotcha. way, that's okay. where the kind of like family lineage, lineage Stra- of music. Yeah, gotcha. The chain of, of handing down the sacred knowledge. Yes. But if I try to say that within like, so it's been in my family since 16th century. <laughs> yeah. But let me explain all this other stuff. It Pretty takes sure. a while and then totally. it's like a tangent. So, yeah, yeah that's where it's been broken, uh, unbroken. So mm-hmm. that actually goes back to this famous, famous court of Emperor Akbar. Can I, I got – Sorry. I want to get to that. It just I got another question yeah. that I have to ask you that 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 just brought up because to me it speaks to like when you're talking about this chain of unbroken like the transfer of knowledge unbroken does that mean that like like it, what it what it speaks to me is it's is it is it that that the knowledge was transferred via like a close relationship between the teacher and student yeah and that's the chain that's going back yeah because when we think about in this country right like people learn music in so many different ways and contexts and i just want to get like clear about what you're saying because i think for a lot of people there they might not understand what that means that like this is like a a direct 
Yes. Hand down. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a really great point because, yes, I realize as I start talking, there's so much stuff here yeah, that it's like for you sure. forget. It's like otherwise it's like I have like footnotes to what I'm saying yeah. here. Uh, yeah. The, in Indian culture, the relationship between teacher and, and disciple or guru shishya, what they call it. So there's this concept called guru shishya parampara. And like this connection between the teacher and the disciple is one of the most uh, like important and sort of cherished connections you can have. Like to call someone a guru is like basically creating a bond that transfers beyond time and space. It's not a life bond. It's a lifetimes bond. Like you are connected to them now for potentially like eternity Mm -hmm. where the guru and the disciple will always find each other again and again and again through the annals of time. It's like you just continue. You're like part of the Dharma cycle together. Yeah, basically you are like being connected to them. And so like the concept of being a guru is crazy because like you are supposed to then become everything to this person beyond their parents, beyond even like a deity of sorts. You are like there to take care of them. So it's like if you become like a guru, like the concept of it is like basically taking this person and now they you are responsible for them for like ever. I'm glad you said that because I've seen the discomfort on Indian people's face when you're like, you're my guru. And yeah. You're like, and they're like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Yeah, like, Slow down, buddy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very loaded uh, term that I think like uh, us Westerners don't always immediately grasp, you know, what, just how much meaning there is in that word. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah. And then some people will like really are really quick to claim that they are. And, you know, it's like the other thing is that like, well, I don't know if it's appropriate, but it's like basically just uh, the, <laughs> There's part of the word that also basically just means like fecal matter. So okay. so if you say it wrong, so a lot of people jokingly, it's a joke that like people will say, <laughs> well, now if I, it's like I was joking to you before about trying to be like respectful uh, in the in the yeah. space of the school. But uh, it's like if you say like guru, it's like basically saying like. Like hagu. Yeah, 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 exactly. Oh, you yeah. know what's up. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like that. So people okay. will sp- oftentimes say that, and it's like, you know, that's so it's like kind of like just a, it's a kind of a bastardization yeah, yeah. Of, the, of the idea of guru, even so in just saying of the word. So it's been, it's become to be like a pejorative at times. Yeah, and it, unintentionally so. And it's like, you know, it's just kind of funny because some people will just like really quick to claim guru, and it's like, if, it's almost like one of those, like, that's almost like a nice, solid red flag to have. If right. someone's like, I'll be a guru, it's like, yeah. nope, that's not the person yeah, that you want. Totally. I, mean, I know that's that's potentially contentious, so shout out to any yeah. of you who... But, uh, no, but that's kind of part of, isn't part of the tradition that, like, correct me if I'm totally... Uh, off base. Off base. How dare you, sir? How dare I? Uh, but isn't, like, part of the traditional, I think this is cross-cultural, but, like, the teacher disciple story is that like you have to prove to the teacher that you're worthy of yeah. knowledge right yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like a guru is gonna like reject you a couple times probably or at least make it make you're it. not gonna get a yes right out the gate unless it's yeah, like some to... amazing connection or something right? yeah yeah and actually that goes back to my grandfather who ended up spending years trying to get this his his main guru this uh muhammad wazir Khansab, this guy to uh accept him as his disciple mm. uh it's crazy. It's actually where my name comes from. There's a whole bunch of cool stuff in there. But like, so if we cycle back here, yeah. Uh, yeah so the the teacher and disciple, very important. That's a really important connection. Um, so when you form a bond uh, that way, it's you know just a really powerful one for you to have, and it's really powerful in Indian culture um, as a as a whole. Um, but then you know, 
that's then ties back to that's where the family lineage comes down. So once he was connected, that's where we have this sort of unbroken chain that goes back and back to the 16th century. And then the idea beyond that is that when you play, you're supposed to effectively, well, the way that we were trained at least, is when you sit down and you're about to play a raga, which is, you know, the the melodic form that we're going to be, you know, um, playing within. Um, yeah, I, wanted, I want to dive a bit into to that. To dive a bit into yeah. that. I want to also light you yes. a little bit better. So As will you, you keep talking. Okay. There is a light right Audience, there's going to be some light changes. But will you just talk? You can talk, talk either, you know, just into my backdrop or whatever. <laughs> Pretend I'm still here. But give us all... Can you give us like a definition of a raga? What is a raga? Yeah, um, there's also a light right behind the the, the tapestry. If you want to use these ones, yeah. So I mean, raga. It's a huge concept, but the idea is that you can look at it as kind of a framework of a melody, and uh, or rather, the raga is the melody, and it has it's constructed of you know a musical scale certain particular notes and then beyond the notes that are used there's going to be certain emotions that are sort of ascribed to that raga so there's kind of a sort of series of emotions that kind of sum up the human experience and it's not exhaustive but in indian classical some of the kind of ones are like uh, peace devotion joy detachment heroism um uh, and things like this, it kind of goes on. And then there's a whole, there's a few other ones in dance as well that they'll depict in physical kind of expression. But for melodic uh, expression, these are the kind of emotions that we associate with any given rag. It might, you could use all of them potentially, but most rags will have a, a number of them. Uh, and that's what kind of focuses on them. So you have this scale of notes, and then it's about how you bring out these emotions through the use of those notes and that's what kind of makes up a raga uh the other way that people say it is kind of like one of the coolest ones i've heard is that it translates to uh that which colors the mind mm. so that concept of like you hear a melody and it you know instills these colors i feel like i keep using the word instill but it uh, it it kind of covers you in this kind of color so to speak in your brain and th- those feelings that's kind of what a raga does it elicits certain emotional responses so it's like a collection of feelings manifest in sound that's <laughs> a very dope way of putting it yeah and so you have like because there's only so many notes and that's like one of the things indian classical is shares the same scale as western classical as well so you still have the 12 kind of main notes basically like the the soul fedge the do re mi fa sol la ti do mm-hmm. of of Western music, we we use one called Sargam, which is actually kind of sounds a little similar, but it's Sa Re Ga Ma Pa Da Ni Sa. Um, and the thing is, instead of using like A B C D E F G as like our key structure, uh, we think of it as Sa Re Ga Ma Pa Da Ni Sa. You still play within a certain key, but it's like if you pick, the, let's say for example, the key of C, you stay there. That's where your Sa is set. If I was singing in B or playing in B, my saw is set. And then I won't switch. I won't change keys at any point while I'm playing. I might change the raga, which has different notes, but I'm only playing uh, within that that fixed rag. So, yeah, I like how you phrased it. That's a really nice way of putting it as well. Uh, that's a nice summed up way. But, yeah, um, 
that's what a raga is. There's, it's one of those where it's like it's really hard to kind of articulate. Yeah. Tons of people try. It's sort of like you can get really heady and clinical, mm-hmm. but it's like then you just have to hear it. Oh, yeah. The point I was trying to say, though, with the 12 notes is that there are only so many notes that we have and we share these. But then it's like how many combinations of these notes can you make? And how many of these see the thing is then Indian music gets beyond the twelve notes and we work on like quarter tones effectively, but we call them shrutis. They're notes that are in between the notes, but you don't exactly play them like a quarter tone as like an individual pitch that you don't you don't just sit there generally on it. You'll slide through it. Mm. And it's that sliding, what we call ondolin, um, is how we start to express these other aspects of the melody lines that bring out these other emotions in different detail. And so you can have rags that have the exact same notes, but it's based on the way that you're sliding into the notes and the way that you're moving around those notes that create a different raga completely. And uh, Yeah, that leads to my next question, sure. which is how does improvisation factor in? Yeah, so then that's the other thing. It's like you learn this structure. So the raga has rules. Oftentimes, I swear, it really feels like the more and more I think about it, the more similarities I find to... There's a lot of parallels to language. Yeah. There's grammar and syntax. And it's like you have to learn the structure of the raga, the way that it moves. So it's not just that there are certain notes. I wish I had, like, if I had my sro, it'd be so much easier to explain mm-hmm. because you start explaining music through words and it's kind of like, cool, dude. Um, but is then it, you hear do it. Do you want to grab it? Is it heat? I didn't bring it, okay. dude. I, I was like, good. I almost meant to hit you up and be yeah, like, yeah. should I bring it? Always. Um, but no, it's ah, all, right, right. We can do a We can do a part two, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, in in short, the idea is that it's like there's there's structure and rules you have to follow. And then at first you can feel kind of almost like restrictive because if you it's so strict, like you can't break those rules. You're not Mm -hmm. supposed to. As soon as you do, you might enter into the the kind of territory of a different melody, a different different raga. And now you change the raga and you've ruined the mood of the first one. And in the kind of killed the vibe, bro, that's effectively (laughs) it. So it's like once you kill the vibe, it's gone. And that actually becomes like, I think, one of the best ways of looking at the music. It's like, did you kill the vibe by kind of going out a little bit? And if you did, it was a big no, no. Mm. Um, If you don't kill the vibe and it still feels like the rug, then did you break it? Like, did you really break the rules? And that's where it becomes this whole like kind of subjective thing. Yeah, but then there's this like okay. massive objectivity of the masters who were like the ones who were like, would sit there in the front row watching you as you played or sang. And if you played it wrong, they're just like, cut, like you're out. And then you'd be kicked off the stage effectively. Mm. And then until you, you couldn't come back until you like went and trained more. Right. And that's when I said to you before that, like a lot of times that a lot of people wouldn't even start performing until they were like seasoned, like in their thirties and forties. And that's, like, not the way that we grew up thinking of music. No. You're, like, yeah. you get out there banging on your guitar when yeah, you're a kid. Totally. And you're, like, for, it's, like, whether or not you're just playing, like, super raw. And it's, like, this is, like, going on, like, a pure punk vibe. And yeah. you're just, like, anything goes. And I remember sitting in front of the Fairfax Pavilion with you, like, 10 years ago. <laughs> and you were doing a uh, some sort of oh, lesson, a lecture, or, demo. lecture demo. And I remember talking to you about it because you know, we grew up in the same community and I, I knew that like, you like your brother, you would come and do demos. It's for right, school. Right, right, right. I like had never experienced you playing the music. And so I was, I remember asking you like, uh, something about your music journey or, you know, is this like a new thing that you're just getting into? And I think that you did say something to me about like, yeah, like, you know, like my family, won't, I, I'm not even allowed to like perform yet. Or I'm like, you said something to that effect of like, you know, that, that it's, 
you're just you're like i'm just working on the ragas man <laughs> yeah there is like totally an aspect like i also came to it a little bit later than my brother Alam, and so it's like i started studying sarod more seriously when or like i wanted to study sarod like actively when i was like 13 okay but like our dad had had us study when we were younger but i was saying like he was forced into it basically by his dad right. he didn't want us to have the same relationship because he didn't want us to wait till 50 to realize that we actually love him um that's crazy dude <laughs> yeah, so yeah, totally. you know uh so he didn't force us and he was like if you come to it it basically was like you have to come to it of your own free will and volition mm-hmm. uh if you choose it great if you don't then it's sort of like say la vie mm-hmm. but at least we could still have a relationship um all of went to it way younger and i got more like it was after high school it was actually when he got sick um so like i had been in college and then i was around 18 when he became sick and that's when i started to really like realize what i was missing um and then i knew that you know as he was getting because i've been taking classes like most of my life with him and i've been studying and studying and studying but it was just something that was part of my life and it was something that i did and it was this whole kind of music practice through osmosis as well where he was like look if you're not actively like trying to be a practice uh, performing musician you just got to be immersed in it all the time. So it's like when you do decide, it's all sitting in there. Yeah, the fluency exists. Dude, now even still, I'll hear stuff from like, I'll hear something that, you know, was like when I was just a baby and I'm like, oh, dude, I remember hearing that. What the heck? Like, I, it was just it was just planted in there deep within the... Mr. Miyagi and you. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> from like, he, he was smart, man. He knew yeah. what was up. He yeah. found he found ways to get it in, in into yeah. your brain and into your heart without like, you know, beating you for it. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, so at that time, yeah, dude, because if that was at the at the that thing you're talking about, my dad was still alive then, uh, which was already he died 13 years ago. So we're talking like, I, I mean, that would have been like maybe 15, 16, 17 years ago or something like that. That's crazy. That was mm-hmm. a while ago. Yeah. Um. So, uh, yeah, I wasn't. You know, at that point, I still wasn't performing. Yeah, and it's like when you perform at that point, it's like you know, uh, you take like a composition, and it's like a fixed piece of music, and that's one of the ways that you would learn a raga. It's like you learn tons of compositions, and you learn uh, like themes. We call them guts, but they're like a theme or a chorus or like a refrain. It's kind of like that main melody that you keep coming back to, mm-hmm. and so you learn these, and then you learn all of these compositions where it's just examples of how you would go from the beginning to the end of a piece of music, which composition, mm-hmm. but it shows you the rules of how you can come up with lines, the different speeds in which you can make lines, the different rhythm cycles, because there's so many there's your four four which is our tinthal which is 16 beats but then there's a group puck which is seven which is found throughout the world but then there's like 10 beats uh 14 beats 12 beats and it can be really fun six beats Mm -hmm. like eight and a half and weird tripped out talls where you're like what this is crazy but you learn all these compositions to show you the rules and the ways you navigate it so then once you do this synthesis of like you learn the rules and the structures. Now you have all these examples to use and then you start constructing them yourself. And so it's like, you know, our dad would be like, are you really improvising though? The whole idea is that you've learned so much material that you can then create things on the spot. Mm-hmm. You're composing on the spot, but yeah. it's like with language, these words that we're saying, like the words that I'm speaking right now, the things you're saying, it's like, we've learned these words mm-hmm. through our lives it's not like we had to learn the actual sentence that somebody said. You didn't hear the exact sentence that I'm saying right now, right. or I'm not, I didn't hear it so I could say it back to you. We're constructing them on the fly, sure. but it's because we have so many examples. Totally. Um, so then it's like, 
you know, are you are you coming up with anything like original and new? Because it's like if the words already existed and you're just putting them in a certain order, mm -hmm. the idea, I mean, with words, this is where it kind of the analogy sort of falls apart because they're, they're words and they have different meanings and things. But mm -hmm. with like frequencies, the idea is that the vibrations exist in the universe all the time. So every possible combination of note frequency exists somewhere in time and space. So it's like, ah, nothing new is being played. It's all just kind of capturing yeah um and sort of rediscovering sounds and, and putting them together well so, when you add all the, when you add the cycle of rebirth and reincarnation into that you know philosophy around music too like are you really learning anything new or are you just remembering the things that were learned in cool previous too. lives that's right? tight i and i have never i don't think i've ever thought about it that way that's cool if you, i mean you know if you think about the people that created the original pieces that you're playing right i think you could make the argument that they that for them that was how it, they believe that, right? So, like, that that some of that philosophy has to be getting imbued into the music itself or into the, the tradition behind the creation of it. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. I mean, it's uh, yeah, the way the way that my grandfather is from what I heard from my dad, and the way that my dad taught it was that yeah, you had these you have these fixed forms, and then once you have learned enough of the fixed forms then it goes beyond just the fixed form. Mm -hmm. Then it goes beyond the feeling. And it's yeah. like, just because you're playing the line that has been fixed or something like that, doesn't mean you actually are creating the, the mood that was there in the raga. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So then it's like, okay, so now you're improvising, so to speak. Um, or my dad would refer to oftentimes as composing on the spot, but it's kind of like, cause it wasn't, it wasn't just this free improvisation where you could kind of reach anywhere you wanted to go. It still was within this sort of sandbox, but it's just the idea is that like, as you got more of a, of a kind of mental and sort of emotional conception of what the raga is supposed to feel like and what, and how it moves, the sandbox just gets bigger and bigger. And at that point, you know, it's a, it's a pretty expansive concept, but you just, you you are free to explore within the confines of the the rag that you find yourself in, and so you, you got to learn the rules so that you know that you can break them intentionally, right? Yeah, and it's like then it's like, but then are you? But then the concept becomes like, are you even breaking the rules if it still sounds like? Yeah, if if certain notes just all of a sudden appear that never are in the rag, it's like, dude, you don't do that. But mm -hmm. most likely, if you did that, you're probably making it not feel like the rag anymore. It feels like something else. Yeah, and so like that seems to be a pretty good little you know barometer so to speak it's like if the vibe feels the same or feels as the vibe should for the rug mm -hmm. um that has been sort of uh unanimously uh agreed upon by the greatest maestros over the course of centuries then it seems like more or less you're okay mm -hmm. it doesn't give you like carte blanche to just like play whatever you want you can't just be like oh yeah like it feels like this because i think it feels this way it's like nah dude there's like there's it's a really weird kind of space in that regard because yeah there is this objective concept of what the rag is supposed to be but then there is also a subjective experience for how the rag feels like to you and then to make it even more confusing there's this idea that the rags are almost seen as entities like individual beings and so do they change and evolve like yes that's the that's the idea and they might be just as we change on the day-to-day -day, depending on where you are depending on the the time of day depend not the time of day well Time of day is a whole other aspect aspect of the music, but depending on the day, the rag might feel different. And so then your job as the artist is to like 
tap into your own mood, mm -hmm. the mood of the audience or who you're about to play for, and then the mood of the raga as you sit down. And that's like some crazy stuff because you're like, what? Like, you imagine that if like the piece, like you're like, yo, I have this song, yeah. but it changes every day, man. Yeah. And I don't know what's coming out this time. But a lot of people do play that way. So it's actually not that, so maybe it's not that strange. Who gets to say what the rog feels like then? The artist. But it's still, but, but it's still, but it's still within like the realm of like this objective is that idea. Part of the role of the master then is to like kind of hold, you know, to like hold some form of objective quality about what these rock traditions are. Like. Oh, absolutely. I think so. Because there's tons of times where you'd be like, you know, Hey dad, I listened to this recording view or there was, I was listening to this old concert and, um, you know, you play this one line in this particular rock. How did you make that work? Like, that's not, you, you didn't teach us to do it this way. Um, isn't that kind of outside the norm? And he's like, mm, what? And, yeah. so you're like, and you're like, dude. So you like show it to him. And then it might be like, mm -hmm. well, you don't understand. Like, you don't understand the reason I did it that day. Or it's like, or it was just as simple as like, it, it was okay in that moment. And then you're just like, man, that is a really <laughs> tricky Court of like just this weird balancing act while you're playing. Yeah. So yeah, it's like one of those where depending on who you talk to, they might feel really strict about certain rules. Mm -hmm. But then you listen to the greatest maestros play all the masters, and you see them. They all have different feelings on things. Right. But then there's like this weird. There's like this weird thing where like you'll hear it. I don't know. It's like if you don't know what you're missing, um, and they do then it's like it's easy for you to be like, ah, that doesn't seem like it's right. And then it's like years pass or time passes and then you realize, oh, man, like I didn't I didn't even know that that part was there. And right. then it's like, well, damn, what else am I missing, dude? So it's like our dad would oftentimes – my brother does this all the time when he's teaching and I love it. It's this idea like you, you, you're listening and it's like as, as soon as you feel like you've heard as much as there – Listen, listen further, like go yeah. deeper into it. And then once you think you've heard all those things, it's like keep going because you've you basically surely missed something. And I don't know. It's like if you've ever felt this, it's like if you're if you're like in, if you're playing a concert or something like that um, or if you were like in a lesson and you think you're like hearing you're playing back what like your teacher showing to you or you like really feel like you're playing the, the particular piece of music you're doing like well. And then you listen to a recording of it and you're like, damn, dude, like I didn't hear myself right. Like maybe the vibe was actually quite a bit different than I thought. Yeah. Or on the happy side is that it sounds better than you think it did. Oftentimes you're like, oh, dude, Usually I'm messing this up. Usually that's the case for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, oh, dude, I'm playing like crap. Like it sucks, dude. <laughs> and you're like trying not to get in your own head while you're playing and oh, you still yeah. have to focus on the concert. Totally. But then you hear a recording of it and you're like, damn, that actually wasn't that. What the hell was I hearing? Like, yeah. dude, where did I go with that? For sure. How, how did your dad feel about mistakes? performance mm. Do you uh, have a philosophy about it yeah i'm trying to think of like some consolidated one or like one that he would use more often than the others um the thing that like was drilled into us and actually caused me i think a lot of like hardship musically in development was this concept of like if it's not in tune and is not in rhythm it's basically broken it's not worth anything and it was like, it has to be in tune. It has to be in rhythm. I think those are great standards. Mm -hmm. Play in tune, play in rhythm. It's yeah. Like, dope. Yeah, that's great. Fundamentals. Yeah. The idea is that it's like, if you don't have those, then nothing else is worth talking about. So what do but, you mean by in tune? Like actually the instrument in tune or in the actual scale? Or? Everything. So like okay. when you play a note, that the note is in tune itself. Like the, so the instrument's in tune, your, your intonation is correct. And then within the raga, that like the way that you're playing the note sounds like the way it should. Um, but basically just as simple as being in tune um, 
as far as we can understand intonation and music and then in rhythm as far as we can understand rhythmic aspects Mm -hmm. you know but uh it's like so then the thing is what that does is that it's like we the idea is that with indian classical it's not just a music for like helping you and helping others but it's also this path of self-realization and it's supposed to be a, a, a supposed to be i mean one of the aspects of it one of the major aspects is that it's a way of worship to the divine so again like religious i don't know if the religious part really matters it's this idea of self-realization trying to like ascend to another plane of existence through sound but by doing it it's like worshiping whatever power may be um and really trying to connect to that through your playing and so when you're playing like a note the note has to be as basically pure and as perfect as possible to try to get you to that place to Mm -hmm. like to to um to to be in a place of worship that feels like honorable enough for the divine this idea of everything being basically perfect so no issue so like no mistake was accepted basically that's the idea obviously then we are infallible we're human beings so it's like we're gonna make mistakes dude no but that's i i see what you're saying because i've noticed this you know i'm friends with you know, my buddies in the honey drops, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing music. And I go to their shows and what I've realized is that the level of craftsmanship is so high that there is a spell that's cast, uh, right? Like there, when you're, when you're able to play at a certain level of consistency, there is a spell that is cast in the air where people are like emotionally so connected to the art and a wrong note a note of discord that's out of the feeling like you're saying yeah can shatter that spell where suddenly we're like oh look at the time i gotta go yeah 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 yeah. oh you know it's it's the same in conversation right like if we're in harmony in a conversation yeah you're tapped in and suddenly the time disappears it it disappears but then it can be something as simple as a text message or you know then suddenly you're out you're like oh my god like you you're returned into a different state of, of thinking and being and i think that like uh as musicians, like we're constantly making mistakes. We're constantly making errors, but um, what I'm trying to do right now is summarize so that I can see that I'm understanding what you're saying. But like by reaching for that divine to, to create that connection to the, to the divine, that, that feeling of transcendence, you know, it's part of it is, you know, you getting used to making mistakes you almost make when you do make mistakes, you're almost making mistakes in the right way or in the like your mistakes become kind of more in tune as well because you're reaching beyond, you know, I, I, like I think there's a way to fail better, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Fail upwards. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's crazy because it's like clearly there are mistakes. I guess it it keeps coming back to me. I think the again, like the, the deeper I get into this music or just in art in general, it's like. Because clearly there are people that will make the ma- the best you know artists make mistakes. It's it's something it's something that does happen. Some of the best musical ideas were a lot of them are mistakes. Right? This, that, yeah, that opens up a super interesting conversation because like there's hell of times where like I'll hear some recording of my dad and some of the stuff that I like the most are these things that like were slightly out of the pocket. Like it wasn't something that maybe maybe his finger slipped off the instrument or something, and then it creates this weird sort of sound because it like strum it strikes off, but then mm-hmm. he maybe uses that as a launching platform from some really dope idea that like becomes some other crazy rhythmic thing, and that's 
that's the part where I think the mastery comes in for mistakes. It's like when you, the mistakes become uh, uh, another path to something better. Yeah. Because they either like they adapt so quickly that it's like or there even is stuff where it's like, you know, you hear some old recording of somebody singing and their voice cracks. But there's something so raw about it totally. that you're like, dude, I would I, it's almost like I would have liked it less if the voice never cracked. Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe if I heard the recording and it would never crack, you'd be like, dude, what? That was the most crazy vocal performance I'd ever heard. I always reference like the old Bob Marley recordings <sighs> from like Jamaica before he like hit huge. Uh. And some of those recordings, there's like all these like flat notes that he's hitting or like you hear sometimes like some one of the backup singers is a little out of pitch. But there's something about the the style of music that they're making or the like the way that it's recorded like it's still in right it's, it's it feels still good feels good and it's like i would prefer that to an auto-tuned perfect in pitch clean recording right of the modern you know that that like these days i think everyone's so focused on being in tune and everything so like auto-pitched and it's like too clean. Yeah, you know? it's too clean. Well, it loses. Yeah, it loses the raw feeling. I think rawness is something that I always connect to, like no matter what the state is, basically. But yeah, that the idea though with that, those types of like, so like playing notes out of tune or having something hit flat. The idea is that this is supposed to be like ironed out of us completely. Like mm. it's you don't do those things, and so that's the, that's what you're trying to reach towards. I think everybody is, but this idea that it's always as a, a pure a way of purity to reach this higher power and that's like at at the crux of i think indian classical music at least hindustani specifically the i'll say in our tradition i can't speak for everybody Mm -hmm. because i'm sure there's a there is a there's a multitude of ways you could look at music and this is only just one way this was my grandfather the way he was trained and what he understood and then what he passed down to my father to ourselves and it's like ourselves being my family and all of his this all the disciples and it's like yeah, it's it's kind of hectic. I mean, like that. So so I'm trying to think. You said you asked, like, does he have a like a like a, a piece of wisdom on like you know um, on that kind of stuff, mistakes? And I'm trying to think of anything he said, like verbatim, that was just that always connected. But it was more the way that he took mistakes and used it into something else. And I think that's where, like, also if you bring back char- parallels to jazz music, it's like, mm-hmm. dude, there's so much stuff that comes out of, like, discordancy in some ways. Like, discordancy. Discordant? Discordancy? Is that a word? Something being discordant in another yeah, word? <laughs> kind of like dissonance? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Dissonance would probably be the better one. Having some form. Because, like, dissonance isn't necessarily, like, a negative thing. No. Um, it's just, like, a different color to paint with, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can have contrasting aspects. So it's, like, those things that... You know, I'm trying to think about, you know, words that my dad actually said it in regards to this. I can't really think of anything off the top of my head that's coming out other than the like, you know, he used lots of analogies and he would always use basically pictures. So there was always like metaphor and analogy and simile. Like those were his his ways. Granted, English wasn't also his first language. He spoke quite a few of them. But he I think it's one of the best ways of expressing in a language is if you because if you can't find the words to exactly say or articulate what you want, you'd use an image. And then right. people are like, oh, dude, yeah, I totally get you. Yeah, totally. So he'd say things like, you know, when you have like a certain note that's out of tune, it would be like a nice fresh pot of milk. And then a fly like lands right on it, you know, <laughs> and you just watch it land right in it. And yeah. you're like, ah, oh, dude, like <laughs> I could still drink it. But like I feel a little funny now because like, yeah. yeah, or like a beautiful white dress. And there's like mm. just one brown stain. And you're like, ah. Bummer. Like yeah. it kind of just it kind of takes your eye and sort of that's what you know you focus on. 
You got to tie dye the dress. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, see, then that's turning the mistake into something else, right? Then all of a sudden you've turned it yeah, into sure. something else. Yeah, there's like some of my favorite stuff my dad does. Well, there's a there's a there's a style or a a, a form of what do you say? There's a thing called tihai in in music or tihai. You'll hear, but tihai where it's a it's you a, know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Di, yeah. It's not that anymore, though, dude. <laughs> I actually so, don't know. I don't know what they're saying. Is is it a high? I have no idea. Hey, Will, gonna, like, yeah. I don't. Will Williams? I'm not sure. <laughs> our, our old high school it was Drake High, D High, but it switched to Archie Williams after a very contentious battle for yes, the names. Yes. Uh, long story short. Uh, sorry, was, I yeah. interrupted you. No, though. but our old our old shout outs, dude. Yeah. Well, cheers, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. T-I-H-A-I. Yeah, uh, That's funny. Dude. I never <laughs> thought about it that way. Um, you've hit me with a couple of these where I'm like, dude, I never thought about that before. That's dope. Thank you for these. Uh, yeah, so T-I is something that repeats three times. So da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da, da 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 And it's a musical device that will get you back to the one generally, but it could get you anywhere on to the halfway point in a cycle because uh, Indian classical kind of – well. We're getting into like all the deep stuff about the the, the, mm-hmm. the the cycles of the music or the way that it functions, but like the one in Indian classical is really, really important, but also so is like the nine for sixteen beats, the one and the halfway point. But it's kinda like it's not just like this this uh cycle that is repeating, 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 and you're like as long as you're in the pocket, you're cool. Everything kind of has to function around this idea of getting back to the one effectively. Mm. So a lot of themes or what we call a gut will start like on the 13th beat or it'll start on the ninth beat and then start and then end on the one. It's like that's where the beginning is. So when you're, you're when you're soloing and when you're playing, the idea is to get back to where this gut comes or to get back to the one. And that's where kind of everything resolves back to. You can get really into cool stuff where you resolve on other notes mm-hmm. and find or other beats and get somewhere else. But Tihais are a really cool way of getting you back to the the to the get back to the one, and um, oh, bro, dude, why was I even talking about this? <laughs> it's all that we were we got into. It was the D highs. No, but I, about I, I did it, hearing you talk about like this music and, and your father's I attitude towards it, I I wanted to ask you like in the tradition, like the traditional understanding of this kind of music, like. Is there such a thing? Uh, like, is it meant to ever be listened to casually? Or oh, sh- totally, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. uh, I feel like so much of what you said, it leads me to believe that it, you're like seeking this prof- profound experience. I know when I've come and, and seen shows here, I've it's like been a different, like it's not like listening to a song on the radio. It's like I'm coming here. Experience. The song, it's like a couple hours, the songs are 10 or a half an hour long. And it's a journey and it's really yeah. dope, but it takes a lot of energy to go through. And it's yeah. like, if I wake up and I'm making some coffee or something like to put on a recording, might not I'm be just wondering like, is like how it's used in more informal settings or how you think about that in those regards. In yeah, absolutely. Um, I did remember what I was trying to say. So yeah, before yeah. I forget, just to finish my whole thing totally, was totally. that it was that some of my favorite things is that he'll do a high And if the high doesn't work because he wouldn't fix anything, everything was really off the cuff when he would play. And that's the way that my older brother and I in particular, like really trained a lot of the disciples trained this way. Um, you don't fix stuff. So it's like high risk, high reward in some regards, but he'll use these things where he, if the high doesn't work, He'll take these mistakes and then turn them into something else. So there's tons of recordings where he misses one, but then because he missed that, he turns it into a different rhythm, which ends up in this like crazy way of getting back to some. So when you finish it, it's just this feeling of like, wow, and like, aha, and just, but it wouldn't have happened if he had 
made it the first time. Mm. So it's almost like the mistake makes the music better. But mistake is kind of a loose term. So right. anyway, um, as far as what you just said, though, uh, wait, I, ha- I had it. And now I'm <laughs> dude, I'm getting. I'm well, getting... no, I mean, just to tag on what you were saying, it's kind of like, what is it, Miles Davis or Charlie Parker who says, like, if you play a wrong note, play it three more times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, it'll exactly. get right, you know. But uh, no, what I was saying is like I was asking you, you know. Oh, can you listen to it casually? Yeah. What's the what are the cla- you know the casual applications of Indian classical it's music? music. Yeah. It's music. So in that regard, like it's like yeah, because like the thing is when it was in the court system, it was also a casual music. It doesn't. I mean, not only, but it could have been like when my dad. So my dad was a court musician. I don't know if you knew this for the Maharaja of Jodhpur. I didn't. Know um, that. Yeah. So he when he was like in his early twenties, he basically was the court musician for this king, kind of at the end period of the. Uh, of the you know the the british colonial period Mm -hmm. and um he had to play for like eight hours a day every day and the king queens princesses princes anybody who dignitaries he was just on call so whenever they wanted uh music he would come and play and so that's just an example of like you know they would do it while they were having food they would have it while they were having you know uh, meetings while they were just enjoying conversation casually if they wanted to have a focused listening session so the music, it's like it's it's there for you as just a music. Mm-hmm. I think the bigger idea, even if it's not casual or beyond the casual conversation, is just the time of day. That's the thing. That, that's one of the aspects of Indian classical that I think is probably one of the most beautiful aspects of it. One of the coolest aspects is that it's like it's based on the time of day. Uh, at least there's certain families who focus on this more. And our, our family definitely are pretty big sticklers about it. Uh, but in the Hindustani classical system, there are, are more focused on the times of day. Um, in the Carnatic system, they've kind of done away with it a little bit. But there's a really cool history with the music being associated with rituals and certain ceremonies that were also based on the time of day, as far as I understand. So then you can get this kind of kind of ritualistic sort of context of why certain melodies were played at those times of day ragams in their case but in our case the rags like um or raga yeah it's the time of day so you'll have morning ragas you'll have afternoon ragas evening ragas late evening late morning late afternoon sunset overnight yeah you have all late night ragas yeah there's late night ragas there's late late night ragas pre-dawn seasonal ragas and there's there's like there's thousands and thousands of them all together i think my dad said there's like possible note combinations is like seventy five thousand different permutations of ragas that's insane dude yeah so uh in each one of them he says like ideally you're supposed to learn like 500 compositions in like each one that was the, like one of the old school ideas to like, really get it into your heart and mind so seventy five thousand times 500 it's kind of crazy dude yeah um how many ragas did he claim to know uh i don't know he said my dad he said his dad knew like just I've never even heard him say he like knew everything basically, but yeah. my grandfather was this insane genius. My dad, I don't know. He knew hundreds. That's the thing. And it's also like he knew potentially thousands of them. Um, he taught something like, I think through the history of the school over 40 years, he taught something like 400 ish different ones, unique ones, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty crazy. And then he taught tons of compositions and a lot of them. So it's a lot of, a lot of music, but, you know, if you look at his actual like repertoire, I'm not sure how many, but the idea being that like whether or not you're listening to it casually, 
you know, listening to it almost in that like beyond passive where it's like you're, it is completely passive. Like you're making food, you're just doing something. It's in the background. You're going about with your day. Then I think there's like, you could, you have it on and you're kind of sitting down and you're like, I'm going to listen to some music and just kind of like do whatever you're doing, but yeah. you're kind of listening. Then it goes onto this whole spectrum of like, are you actively studying it? And it's like, are you, what are you looking for? Like, are you listening to like how they're, how they're going through the raga are you breaking down each individual line are you looking at the notes that they use whereas like you are you trying to look at the kind of overarching theme of how they're moving through the melody um all that to say i feel like it's the time of day that really is the kind of the ticket it's like if you're listening passively totally cool Mm -hmm. just listen to a morning raga if it's in the morning gotcha the whole idea is that it's like the ragas will have more or less potency uh, the notes will have more or less potency based on the time of day. There's lots of superstition. Like mm-hmm. the worst cases, there's one called Iman Kalyan, which is like a really powerful rag that a lot of people will learn first. Kalyan. Um, in our family, we play a version of it called Iman Kalyan or Yaman Kalyan. And uh, which Yemen, there's potentially folklore that it actually comes from Yemen, that it was transferred over. So it's kind of cool. But yeah. there's this, uh, so you have a, a rag potentially from another country that is one of the major ragas in the Indian system. Pretty, pretty interesting. To yeah. Me. But we don't know. That's just one of the potentials. But so this rag, if it's a nighttime raga, if you play it during the day or out of time, my dad would say that the, the, the folklore is that your family will die. <laughs> oh shit. So you're like, what? Like, I don't even want to mess with that dude. That's like, that's like that's candy man or yeah, like, yeah, you know, totally, or like totally. bloody Mary, all yeah, these things. You're like, yeah, I, yeah, you can do it. But like, you want to take the chance. I don't want to mess with that <laughs> yeah, stuff, dude. Yeah. I don't want intru- to, I don't want to like welcome that juju. It's like, For don't you sure. put that, that, what is it? That, that, that on me, Ricky Bobby. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. dude. Uh, so it's like, you know, then you have the idea of, um, like, just that it just doesn't feel as good that you're just kind of missing out uh, on like the potency. That's yeah. probably the sweetest way of looking at mm-hmm. it. You could listen to the ragas at the wrong time of day, but it's one of those, like if you didn't know, does it have the same, like neg- is it, you know, so where is the, 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 the how kind much of psychosomatic put on you yeah. and how much of it is like inherent to the music. Yeah. And then once you know, is it like, well, cause once you know, you can't turn it off. Man. Right. So it's like, do you want to go? It's like, you Matrix feel style. it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now it's at a point where it's like you can, I can, you know, you put a rock that I don't know, potentially never heard, and it's like more or less you hear it and you're like, oh, yeah, I can feel that this is either like morning, late afternoon, evening, but it'll have to do with like what notes are being played, how the notes are being played. Yeah. Um, and that, so there's a bunch of stuff that will then go into like how I would think about what the melody is. What does it sound like? Um, because again, they share so many similarities with other ragas. You have to learn other ones, you know, what not to play. So basically, like, you've put your eggs over easy on top of the rice. <laughs> That's There's it, no dude. going back. Yeah, yeah, dude. It's the best. <laughs> it's the best. Yeah, once you've opened that, like, sweet Pandora's box, yeah. like, yeah, you can't Full really circle. close it. Dude, that's uh, that's awesome. That's lovely. Well, dude, we're, like, at – we just hit two hours right there. Oh, are you serious? Yeah. That's Bro. The, the time warp, dude. Man. Uh, which is – that's what the – you know, we just did a rock, right? Yes. This is, like – you know, like I was just saying, that's what I love about this, this medium. But so I think like, you know, we're getting to our limit thinking about your time and my time. I do feel like for the audience out there, we got to like finish this story about your grandpa because oh. <laughs> there was such a good tease and we got like the first chapter. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, I also know that you we're trying to end around five. It's like five forty six, five forty five. So yeah, I want to be cognizant of that. I definitely like we didn't even like 
get to the history of the school or any of this other things more to come hopefully in the future yeah. but i was thinking maybe if possible we could end with with the story with the story and you know that can be like yeah a nice resolution to this beautiful conversation yeah thanks bro yeah thanks for having me on uh okay this well we'll just we'll do the, do the little summary the school started in the late 60s it is going on still for 50 plus years we are still an active institution for indian classical music if you want to study indian classical music just come check us out we are the ali akbar college of music aacm.org uh, you could also look up my dad ali akbar khan ali akbar khan.com tons of music we actually have a for he just turned 100 this year or he would have yeah we did we put together a 24-hour playlist of music of just his that is time-based so i was just talking about what? the time i need this bro need it's on aliakbarkhan.com okay. it's called raga radio you just go to it you basically we did it so it's based on from like i think it starts at 5 30 in the morning and then you can choose whatever rag is closest to your time you'll see where it fits within the mm. 24 hours you just press play and then just you don't have to think about it. You just go to the time of day that you're at, press play, and then it'll just go. Is it a constant it. stream going? Yeah. So no, you, we have it. We you, have it be that you started it you when started you do it. You started the song. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's there. Um, my dad, you know, we keep the music going. The school is here. We still teach. Uh, you want any more inf- any more information? Hit us up. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the spiel. And uh, we're still going strong. And, uh, and you're teaching as well. Yeah, teaching. And uh, my family runs the school. It's our mom. She's the director. My older brother, Alam. He's the head of instrumental music. Uh, myself, uh, our younger sister, uh, Medina. And then Pandit Shapan Chaudhary. He's one of the best musicians on the planet. And he is our tabla master who has been teaching here for, what, like 40 years now? Shapan's still going strong? Dude, he's still going strong. And he's just he's better than ever dude is a dude is a monster it's one of those things where it's like when you look at mastery mm-hmm. it trips me out because it's like you usually expect someone to get like older and you know those physical parts that slow down that's just what happens but you know you get smarter and wiser and you learn more i don't know what it is about him though it just seems like he just keeps getting f- it seems like his abilities don't diminish yet he just keeps getting stronger so you're like what elven like yeah. sorcery is this dude like the, crazy the, stuff the chatteries are a special group yeah i yeah. feel the same way about nilan though it's like i see him you know i see the time lapses in between seeing him i see him every couple of years and i'm like you got some elfin blood in you dude yeah yeah well nilan yeah he's he's dope he's just a, he's a very good musician and yeah he's... and you guys have played together a lot right oh yeah i mean i grew up with nilan he's a him and ishan and their whole family i mean mm-hmm. it's just like my dad considered shopun like a son and a brother and then for Shopunji, it's like a dad and a brother. And yeah. so for me, it was always like, an, I was like, what are you? My uncle, older uh, brother. And uh, it's kind of like all of it. It's just family at that right. point. So it. Nilan, Ishan, it's like we're just all family. Jane and everybody. Love them. So sweet stuff there. Uh, my grandfather was eight when he runs away. He got banished from playing music. So he's like, I have to study music. So he basically gets together a little bag of things, some money, some clothes, some food. He hops on a train. He's eight, right? Where was he at this time in India? Uh, no, so in this point, he should have been... He was in Bangladesh. Okay. What is Bangladesh? So, yeah. um, At um, that time, was it part of... Yes, before it had been separated. Yeah. And uh, uh, But wh- my, gr- my dad grew up in Shivpur, Bangladesh. Where is my dad from? Shivpur? Sh- ah, I'm losing my family. I'm talking too much, dude. It's all good. We'll just say he was not where he was. Yeah. And then he... Uh, he Catch, catches a train he hops on one doesn't know you need a ticket nobody stops him i don't know how all this stuff happens right causality 
fate, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it. World is crazy. So he hops on a train. No one stops this eight-year-old kid. He takes a train, and he ends up in Kolkata. Whereas I believe Kolkata is where he goes first. I don't know if he knew he was going to Kolkata. I don't know if he why he just hopped on the train. He gets there. Doesn't know anybody. He's eight. So he found a place to sleep. Somebody steals his belongings the first night. So now he is a kid, has no idea where he is, has no money, no food, nothing, and uh, is just on the streets. And all he wanted to do was to find a music teacher. And so eventually, and ah, this is just crazy stuff. I was in India a couple years ago. Let me go back. Mm-hmm. He finds a house and he basically is laying down because he's so exhausted. This dude opens the door, sees this little boy sitting outside and he's like, what are you doing? And the guy's like, I just need some water. I just, you know, I'm, I'm basically lost. I don't have mm-hmm. anything. The guy brings him in, gives him water and eventually connects him to his first music teacher. I was playing a show in India in 2019 and this older man comes up to me and he goes, you know, Hey, we're really, we're very closely related. And I was like, Oh, like we're family. Like, cool, man. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, my grandfather is the man who opened the door for your grandfather. Whoa. And I was like, wait, what? what? And I was like, dude, your grandfather is the reason I exist, man. Like, are you serious? Yeah. It's just like, it was one of the cooler experiences in my life. I was just like, that's crazy. Because without this guy, I don't know what would have happened. Right, to him. yeah. So he meets, a, he meets a teacher and he studies vocal music um, for like six years with this guy. And it's like super serious, rigorous training, only vocal technique, like not really focusing on songs and compositions, just strengthening the body. And he practices crazy hard for all these years. And so I think at this point he's like 14, 15. Um, he becomes like a total badass at, at vocal music because mm-hmm. he's been only doing strength training. He's just like, like and he's breathing techniques, breathing techniques, vocal techniques, tons of patterns. So he's yeah. basically the idea was that to train your mind and body to hear every possible like note permutation and, and things. So when you start learning compositions and different different ragas and different patterns, you've already sung them. And you just latch onto them and you can just basically glob it in. You've already embodied it. Yeah. yeah, because the music, again, at this time was still not written down. It was just, it was an oral and an oral tradition. It was only by ear. Wow. So everything was transmitted that way. And that's why songs are so important because they're one of the best tools to transmit information, right? Totally. Then this guy, once he starts getting enough to do more with the musical training, he passes away. The teacher does, unfortunately. And so now he's like really strong and really good at what he does, but he still needs more teachers. And so he ends up getting like a violin instructor. Um, and I, th- I don't know if he learned violin at some point, but he ends up getting involved with like a troupe of musicians for performances. And the, the cycle just kind of continues where he basically just keeps l- meeting these people and absorbing as much possible information a- as he can. Do you know and- what, what era, what time? So historically, my, this is yeah, historically. yeah. So this would have been the late 1800s at this point because my grandfather was born. The birth records are a little mixed up, but either he was born somewhere between 1862 and around 1881. Wow, which is my grandfather, right? Yeah. That's crazy, dude. Yeah. So it's a long time here. Uh, so this at this point, most likely, it was like the you know late 1800s. It was somewhere in the 70s, or it was somewhere in the 80s, or potentially somewhere in the 90s. We don't know. The records are kind mm-hmm. of funny. Um, 
But yeah, so fast forward all this stuff, he basically just keeps going from teacher to teacher to teacher to teacher. And he just basically absorbs everything they have until they're like, I have nothing else to teach you. We're going to send you on. He could do this thing where he could like uh, basically hear a song one time and have it memorized. So what he used to do is he would like climb up onto rooftops to try to like hear music teachers teaching somebody else. And he just stole all this music this way, hanging like out the windows and like... (laughs) So eventually it gets to this point where he starts uh, needing to write stuff down. So he develops his own notation system just to write and transcribe all the music. And what he was doing at the time, he was one of the only Bengali. Like where he was at this point, there weren't too many Bengalis around. And so they called him the Bengali Babu. And um, he would like invite like learned people to his home where he was and basically he would cook for them and make them food and tea and stuff and they'd all get together but then he would like he always did this on purpose though because he knew that if if all he needed they needed was like a spark and then they'd start this musical conversation so you'd have these great masters come over Mm. and and the reason why is because i think because he was the bengali babu he was kind of an abnormality in the area and it was this unique kind of situation good food different types of stuff he had some some kind of clout about yeah there was something new about the, the yeah the, bengali babu so like they would come and see him and they would like you know he'd get them to come at how least old enough. was he at this time uh, you know now i'm not uh, there's somewhere he was like probably like in his 20s maybe okay. even in his 30s at gotcha. this point young but, man like, yeah yeah he was a younger man but what you do is he would have these guys come and then he would get them somehow to talk about music he'd leave the room and then they'd start reciting all these old compositions, different uh, tubable patterns, different songs, and he would just start writing everything down. And so he just basically took everybody's music. So it's like, yeah, you know, it's kind of uh, contentious, man. I mean, he was out there jacking everybody's stuff. But he was like trying so hard to get it because he wasn't related to these people. And so all this stuff was kept kind of of hidden. Mm -hmm. And back in the day, like nowadays, dude, we can hear a recording of an old master. We have technology that can like loop it yeah. pitch adjust it tempo adjust it. it if you heard some crazy line that you're like dude what the hell was that you're like you heard it in concert like that was the dopest thing i ever heard yeah, yeah, it's yeah. gone right? unless you remembered it but now it's like dude you just like loop that thing like make it slower and you're dude. like all right time to like sit down and study this thing right. and see what's but up he had built up already earlier like like that biological yeah, to, to processor grab. to be able to store it just off of first hearing. And if he didn't, if he, if he needed to remember it after that, he would write his own notation out. So he just took all this stuff and he ends up consolidating all this crazy amount of information. And, uh, now this story is already, it, it it's already getting longer. So the idea is that he, at one point there's a King that basically is having a, a conference, a contest rather, uh, for kind of like nationwide to be mm-hmm. like, Whoever wants to be my 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 uh, court musician has to come and prove themselves, and so all these musicians come from far and wide to play for the king. And um, he uh, basically had at this point learned a bunch of different instruments, and he could play violin, he could sing, he could play. He ends up learning Western classical as well for a long time, and I forget if he had already been doing it at this point, but he could play a bunch of instruments, and he. Um, is out there playing all these instruments and they're pretty darn good because he just, all he did was practice. But he heard this one gentleman playing the Sarod and which is what we play. He heard an old version of it. And he's like, that was for him, like the coolest sound he'd ever heard in his life. And he was like, what am I doing? He has all these instruments and he can play. And he's like, but I can't, I can't sound like that. That's what I want. And he tries to go and study with this gentleman. And I think I might be mixing up some of the time, but the important stuff is that he learns some of it. And he eventually wants to find this one 
guru, this Muhammad Wazir Khan Sahib, who I talked about a little bit earlier, uh, an hour and a half ago probably, <laughs> something like that. And uh, the dude won't take him in, though. He tries to go to the guy's house, and the, he gets pull, he gets pushed away basically by the family. Like, no, he's not taking any disciples. No, he won't see you. And so the story goes is that for three years, he goes every single day to try to meet this man. Every single day, they tell him no. Um He's never met him. He's only talked to like the servants and the family who just keep sending him away again, he heard and, again him play? and again. Yes, he's heard him play. And so he it's just that he's the one that he needs to go study with basically. And um I forget if like he was told to go study with him or he heard him somehow and that's why he had to. But this was the guy that he wanted to be with. So at this point he is a few years into this and he's still living, he's playing music and all this kind of stuff. He decides to take his own life. He's like, "Dude, if I um if I can't study with this guy, there's no point to keep living anymore. Mm. And so he actually ends up getting like a vial of, of like poison. And he's like, I have one last ditch effort. I'm going to go stop this, this basically this King. Um, uh, I'm going to jump in front of his carriage and I'm going to like request. And I'm going to just like plead on my knees for him to help me. And so that's what he does. He goes and he basically follows the king like leaving the palace and he jumps in front of the the carriage with the horses and all the guards have their weapons drawn mm. on him and he and basically the king's like like what are you doing and he's like like please like sir you know your majesty i i need to study with this person i'm a really well-learned musician and i can't i've been trying for like three years and he won't see me and he's like i even bought this bottle of uh poison to take my life if he if he won't you're my last hope. He's his Obi Wan, basically. Yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, the king's like, "That's pretty drastic." Okay, uh, you say you can play all these instruments, and he's like, "Yes." He's like, "Okay, well, bring them. Meet me back at the palace with all your things, and I'll hear you." So, uh, he goes and grabs his instruments. He comes back to the palace and he plays with the king. And the king's like, "You are fantastic." Like, of course, I'll try to get you an audience with him. And then it turns out, as he reaches out to Muhammad Uzir Khan Sab, the, the king, that um, he had never known that this boy had been coming to his house for three years. No one ever told him. He just was doing his thing, and they just kept turning him away. Right. No one ever thought to say that this guy had been coming for like three years. Right. So the king requests an audience now. Now from the king, it's a different story. Totally. And I think it was even like after you heard him play, he did what you said, where it's like you still have to like prove your worth. So there was still like a period of time afterwards that he had to prove himself before he could study. And then eventually he does. And the craziest thing about this is that once he becomes his disciple, at this point he was a right-handed musician. But, you know, there's a bunch of different stories about this. But the one I always heard from my dad was that they made like lamb curry. And my grandfather was a vegetarian. Oh, he was a Bengali vegetarian, though, because he ate fish. So it's really like a pescatarian. Uh-huh. But they're like, ah, fish, it's not meat. It's like yeah. vegetables. They're right. like, I don't know about that. <laughs> but effectively, he's like, he felt so um, wrong, like he had done a disservice to his guru that like he couldn't accept this like blessing that his guru was giving him, this beautiful meal, to pay tribute, basically, recompense, like to, to kind of like honor him. He's like, I will show you my, my devotion by playing left-handed now. And you're, he was, like, in his mid-30s at this point. So it's like, dude, imagine, like, just playing left-handed now or reversing your hands. Yeah. You're like, what? What? So he just starts just playing left-handed. Everything. He started – then he also was, like, a carpenter. He would learned throughout his life. So then he starts developing all of his instruments. He starts drilling holes on the other sides, mm-hmm. turns all his instruments left-handed, and just is now left-handed. Uh, when it comes to music and so everything you hear him play like there's that picture of him back there he's the one that's in the center that's him playing a sarod that's my grandfather he's playing a left-handed sarod at that time and um 
Then and so the crazy thing when I said that about the my namesake, the king that saved his life is named Manikya Bahadur. And so my name is Manik Bahadur Ali Khan. Um, so I was named after that 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 guy who saved that guy that king who saved <laughs> you know, that dude you know that dude yeah uh, that the king who saved my grandfather. Yeah. So fast forward, uh, a whole bunch of other stuff happens, and he is the legend that he ha- is. But they say he could play like two hundred instruments well, mm-hmm. play like bagpipes and stuff like that wow. too. He learned everything he possibly yeah. could and created instruments and. But yeah, that's kind of the crazy story. That's the that's the very very cliff noted version of it. Yeah. We have, we have we have his journals and he writes all crazy just I mean really detailed stuff about his thoughts and his life and dude gotta make a movie man it would be a dope movie let me know I'm a filmmaker yeah, I'm down yeah, that's dude sick. that's a story I'd love to tell dude that'd be sick well dude right. Monik thank you so much for your time Bro. I really I feel like we could keep going we could uh, probably yeah, do yeah. like a bunch of these and when you're back from India let's connect. I feel like I've got so much more I want to ask you. Yeah, sorry, dude. You just talked about like no. specific things. Yeah, yeah. No, no. We're good. <laughs> this was amazing. This I'm stoked on this episode, and I'm really grateful that you came on. Um, how can people find and connect with you and your art? What's what's the best way for, for people to find you? Yeah, we had a whole conversation about this before we got on air uh, about social media and all yeah, these things, yeah. which we didn't even talk about. Oh, I know yeah. that was one of the things we were going to um, – you can find me on social media, uh, Instagram, and most of my handles are Monic the Eighth. I am the Eighth Son, okay. and that is why I am Monic the Eighth. And you're like the baby, right? You're the youngest. Medina, son? Medina. Oh yeah, I'm the youngest son. Medina is the youngest girl. Medina is the youngest child. Yes, yes. Yeah. I'm the uh, I'm the eighth son, the eleventh kid, which is crazy. Yeah. So Monic the Eighth, M A N I K, uh, looks like Manic with a K, yeah. <laughs> but it's Monic, Monic the Eighth, and uh, or MonicCon.com. That's my website, and that's cool. got links to everything. But yeah, and you're about to take off on an epic tour of India, right? Hopefully, pretty epic. Yeah, I'm going with my brother Alam. Uh, he hasn't been back for quite a few years. I haven't been back since before the pandemic. Uh, right, I got back right as the pandemic started, basically here, okay. and uh, a little bit before. So yeah, I'm stoked, man. We're gonna go. He's got a bunch of shows. I have some shows. We're playing together. Super excited to be back there with him too. See a bunch of family, oh, old yeah. friends, reconnect with people, and uh, you know get into the the deep practice abroad well monik baba thank you so much <laughs> for coming on the show dude. Yo, dude i appreciate you uh much love man and, thanks uh, for thanks for having me yeah dude until the next time yeah if anybody made it this far yo you are a yeah, champion <laughs> we appreciate you out there much love yo on the digital waves yeah the bark cast dude peace